Welcome to another edition of Consensus Unreality. Before we get into today's episode, we want to invite you to join us over at patreon.com slash consensus unreality, where we host exclusive episodes, discussions, feedback experiments, written content, and much more. We are planning to move over some of the kind of stuff that we'll put on the main cast uh, on over to the Patreon. We're going to expand it a little bit, have a little bit more of everything we've been doing already, and... It's sort of the best way you can support us. It's $5 a month. And if you like what we do over here in the free podcasts, uh, yeah, you'll be seeing a lot more of that kind of stuff over on Patreon. And it's the best way to support Ben and David of Consensus Unreality. So here is another beautiful episode. (laughs) Again, I don't know. Here's the episode. We're joined today, episode 51. Uh, we're joined by Robert Guffey, the author of Camellio, and most recently Operation Mindfuck, which is, uh, I think, probably the best QAnon book so far, or one that is most honest about uh, facing QAnon as a phenomenon on its own terms, uh, whatever terms those are strange terms uh thanks for joining us today robert how's everything going i everything's good well as good as it could be yeah right um i guess we kind of wanted to start it by start uh the interview today by asking how you kind of got into all this stuff um maybe that's kind of a common question but i feel like it's cool to set the groundwork for how you ended up writing a book called operation mindfuck (laughs) Now, when you say all this stuff, do you mean... <laughs> all this stuff. <laughs> um, well, like, so, was it your first book, Crypto Scatology? Is that, I mean, how did you come to write a sort of book about conspiracy theory as art form, for one thing? I, I, I mean, I guess you could go back, if you, if you want to go way back. Uh, I, my, my mom worked at a, a thrift store in Torrance, mm. California, and she brought home this big uh, stack of these uh, used books published by the Danbury Press in England and they were kind of like a British version of of those time life books on the supernatural Mm -hmm. they were edited by uh, the unlikely team of Yuri Geller and Colin Wilson wow awesome Um, yeah and each volume uh, had this weird like Baphomet head on the back uh, cover and each volume dealt with a different topic so one was like um, strange disappearances Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other one was UFOs and cryptids, etc. So weird. Yeah, I was just looking at a copy of one of those maybe a half hour ago. It's very strange <laughs> that you bring that up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember opening one of them and seeing the cover for the first edition of Low by Charles Fort. And mm-hmm. it was just a picture of these frogs falling from the sky. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Charles Fort. And I love the title, Low, mm. exclamation yeah. point. And I thought, what a strange thing. This guy wrote a book about frogs falling from this guy. <laughs> uh, uh, and then it took me a while to find a copy. But eventually I did find a copy of the, the complete books of Charles Ford. Uh, and I read 
I read those, which I thought I just I read those around the same time I first discovered William S. Burroughs and I found some mm. sort of stylistic connections between the two, even though Fort was decades earlier. Yeah. Uh, but I, I saw some sort of similarities there with uh, an obsession with sort of uh, magical thinking uh, and, and also with playing with language. Uh, and after that, I discovered Johnny Keel, mm. The Mothman Prophecies, which was through complete synchronicity. I remember coming home from school. I was in my first semester at El Camino Community College, and I came home and turned on KCRW uh, FM, and there was a sh some radio show on where they were talking about the Mothman. So this would have been like 1990, uh, and they kept mentioning this book, Mothman Prophecies, and, and the guy went and interviewed people uh, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, uh, and I thought, this sounds fascinating. So. I, I found a copy of Mothman Prophecies. I read that. Um, and then I s sort of kept going farther down the rabbit hole. So by the point that I went to CSU Long Beach, I decided to challenge myself so that whenever they gave me an essay assignment, I thought I would tie it in with some different conspiracy. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and and so I, I did that. And I... And, and, and to do it in such a way that you would also get an A on the project was the other part of the challenge. Uh, and so I would, it, I, it, it was like serving double duty. I was writing these essays for school, and then I would turn around and submit them to all these crazy zines I was reading, like Paranoia Magazine, yeah. Steam Shovel Press. Uh, there was this, this explosion of, of DIY uh, conspiracy and, and high weirdness zines. Yeah. Um, at that time and uh so i would write the the essay uh for example i had a shakespeare class and so i thought how can i tie in shakespeare with all this stuff and my first thought was should i write an essay about how shakespeare was an alien abductee and i thought <laughs> no that's going too far you know they're not going to accept that and then i thought oh i know i'll write an essay about how shakespeare was a freemason Mm. And and it started out actually as a joke, like a satire on academic writing. But then as I started researching it, I, I eventually convinced myself that that was true. Uh, and and uh, actually, I think there is legitimate um, evidence <laughs> yeah. that, that, that Shakespeare, if not a Freemason, was very well familiar with Hermetic tradition. Mm, right. And you see the symbolism in, in Macbeth, uh, certainly in The Tempest and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I wrote an essay uh, about the Masonic symbolism in Macbeth. And I remember writing it thinking, this professor is going to love this because how many essays does she get about Macbeth and well, whatever? You know, uh, she probably gets the same essays every semester. And I turn it in and she gives it back to me and there's an F on it. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, how is this possible? So I went to go visit her in her office and she said, well, according to mainstream history, Freemasonry didn't begin until 1717, and I said, "Well, it, in terms of yes, as as a, uh, a printed history, in, in in terms of print, yes, that's true. But it existed as an oral tradition prior to 1717. Mm -hmm. Ironically, since then, there's actually been uh, documents, Masonic documents, that have come out that extend it back to at least 1600, which mm -hmm. is exactly around the time 
that Shakespeare was writing. Uh, so, but I, I argued that it was uh, that it existed as an oral tradition before that point. But she didn't like that argument, and then so she didn't change the grade. So then there's a process you can go through where you can actually appeal your grade and have it changed. Uh, so I initiated that entire process and I was getting all pumped up for it, like, like Rocky, uh, <laughs> before the, you know, I was like practicing, like what I was going to say in front of the board and everything. And, and then I just one day got this letter in the mail saying, uh, cause I had to put together all this information and, and like write an essay as to why it should be an A instead of an yeah. F and I did that. And then uh, I just got this letter in the mail one day that said, yes, uh, we're changing the grade from an F to, to an A. Hmm. And on one hand, it was cool. But on the other hand, I felt disappointed because I thought in my mind, I had this image of going into some like German expressionist film, uh, right. this giant room with these like judges sitting behind <laughs> this elongated podium. And I was going to sit there with the professor. And we were going to have to debate this thing. I thought it was going to be this like really complex situation. And instead it was just kind of fizzled out and they changed it from an F to an A. So that was the, the only stumbling block uh, in that plan. Otherwise it worked pretty good. Uh, every, every essay topic they threw at me, I would tie it into some sort of high strangeness, 40 and subject, uh, then publishing it in one of these magazines. And a lot of those ended up in cryptoscatology, the mm. Shakespeare essay, yeah, uh, was Shakespeare Freemason. That's in cryptoscatology. There's an essay called "Honey, Did You Leave Your Brain Back at Langley Again," mm. which is all about mind control. That I, I took an, a class on alternative media, and you were supposed to uh, analyze various examples of alternative media. So I was able to tie that in, and then I had a class that was called the Literature of Surrealism. So I wrote an essay called "You Name the Dwarves," that was all about comparing surrealism and how sur surrealist techniques were sort of hijacked by uh, Madison Avenue uh, and, and, and used to sell products as opposed to liberating people, which was the original intention of Andre Breton and the original surrealist, uh, and on and on like that. So a lot of those early essays uh, were written because of a prompt I was given by a professor. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Were you, uh, were you aware at the time that I think in uh, The Secret Teaching of All Ages by Manly P. Hall, he talks about uh, Shakespeare being a, con a construction of Francis Bacon, I think, right? Right. You know, it's funny. I had not yet read Secret Teachings of All Ages. I hadn't ever even seen a copy mm -hmm. at, by that point. Um, I, I once uh, attended a lecture by Stephen Heller, uh, Dr. Stephen Heller, who's the bishop of the Gnostic Church in mm -hmm. L.A., uh, and uh, he was talking about Manly Hall's obsession with, and, and Heller knew Manly P. Hall. It was sort of like Manly P. Hall was his, Heller was sort of Manly P. Hall's protege. Mm. Uh, and and Heller said that um, Heller wasn't a big fan of the idea that Francis Bacon was Shakespeare. Uh, he said, he said, I noticed that a lot of the people who were obsessed with trying to prove that Shakespeare was someone else, they don't actually read the plays. <laughs> like it's just sort of like a, a, a crossword puzzle to them. Of like trying to find clues and stuff like and he said at the end of the day does it really matter who wrote the plays mm -hmm. right, you know? right. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, which I thought was fascinating of course it, it, it's true at the end of the day it, it doesn't really matter you know whoever wrote the plays seemed to have some sort of even if it was more than one person let's say uh, but whoever wrote Shakespeare's plays seemed to have an intense interest in hermetic 
mm-hmm. alchemical and Rosicrucian uh, symbols. Right. I remember someone was arguing that it was John D. I don't remember when that. So I read something about that. That's a that's a good one. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Christopher yeah, Marlowe. Uh, Christopher Marlowe is also cited right. as right. a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like yeah. to think uh, that. Have you ever seen the Woody Allen film, The Front? I haven't seen. No, I haven't that seen one. that one. Yeah. It, it's from the the seventies, and in fact, it was written by a guy who was blacklisted. Uh, it's it's one of the few films that Woody Allen starred in that he did not write or direct. Huh. Uh, he just stars in it. And the film was written by a guy who was blacklisted during the, the McCarthy era. Uh, yeah. And so the whole thing is sort of a comedy slash drama about the screenwriter uh, who is a communist. So he gets blacklisted, but he wants to keep writing screenplays, of course. So he had this, this uh, friend back in college who happens to be Woody Allen, who's a fry cook. And he goes to him and he says, listen, I just want you to put your name on my scripts and we'll split it, the money. Uh, and then Woody Allen's like reluctant at first, but then he says, okay. So then that works out. So then all the uh, all of his other communist friends decide to use Woody Allen as the front as well. So Woody <laughs> Allen gets this reputation as being this extremely versatile writer who can do romance, comedy, you know, horror. He can do anything. Uh, and uh, there's a wonderful scene where uh, the, he, they're doing some sort of um, live show that's sponsored by the gas company, but it's a drama about the Holocaust, and they don't want to be associated. They don't want the gas company to be associated with a show about the Holocaust. Uh-huh. So they they ask him to rewrite it, and he has to rewrite it like in two hours. And they stick him in a room with a typewriter and say, "We we need, we need the new draft in two hours." And of course, he's not a writer, so he has to figure out how to how to get out of the situation. But but I, I like to think that. Uh, that Shakespeare was like the Woody Allen character in the front. Mm. <laughs> yeah. He was just like all these people who couldn't write for various reasons, you know, because they either pissed somebody off or, or they, they would get burned at the huh. stake if their name was associated with it. They're just yeah. like funneling this stuff to Shakespeare, and then he's like producing all of it. I I love to think that that's that's the secret. Mm. I, I no evidence for it though. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. That's funny. That reminds me of something. Yeah, maybe. I feel like that's kind of like a, not a trope, but like kind of like you see that kind of narrative happen where there's like sort of a, a face of like, for the, you know, in front of it, this entire kind of conglomerate of, of different people. It's kind of like a brand or something, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Like, yeah. Like uh, the, the figurehead. Yeah. Um, or like a president or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. I, I would love to talk a little bit about uh, Camellia before we jump into the new book. I feel like um, Camellia is just such an excellent example of nonfiction that kind of presents the strangeness of our current state of reality. It, it reads like uh, some of the most paranoid PKD novels or maybe like a almost like a work of uh, magical realism at, at sometimes uh, covers everything from um, non-lethal weapons to invisibility cloaking, uh, robot soldiers, even packs of gun-toting ape men in the desert. So uh, maybe you could give us a little background on how, uh, how you came involved uh, in that project and, and some of the affects of writing that book. Uh, it's funny when the book first came out in 2015 I, I know people who, who read it probably as 
a work of, uh, I don't know, gonzo surrealism or, or something like that. But mm -hmm. uh, now that we're in 2022, a lot of the stuff that seems surreal is seeming more just like everyday reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I knew that uh, when after the book was published, as the years went on, little aspects of the book that seemed ridiculous would start pop popping up in the news as actual real real news items. I mean, even uh, the, there's there's a company that makes these leapfrogging robots uh, for use in the military to like uh, have uh, to carry packages and bags, you know, so that the soldiers don't have to carry it. And, and so these kind of weird, they look like Ray Harryhaus and stop motion figures marching mm. along. Uh, carrying the the bags and the and the guns and everything and and I look at it and it's exactly like the description uh, in in Camellio you know of of the supposed leapfrogging robots that that Damien uh, saw on the beach <laughs> uh, and 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 there's other you know examples of that there, there was an article uh, uh, let's let's see if I can find it um, oh yeah uh, this came out it was a year after. Camellia was published March 2016. Uh, this was published in the, the the Guardian, the British newspaper, and the headline is "Military Invisibility Cloaks Could Breach Geneva Conventions." Wow! And it's this real serious article uh, about um, under Article 37 of the 1949 Geneva Conventions, ruses such as camouflage, decoys, mock operations, and misinformation are all permitted. Conventional camouflage, this this expert says, uh, aimed at causing the enemy to blend into the background is lawful and bending light might be regarded simply as a technologically sophisticated way of achieving that outcome. But if camouflage is used to pretend to be a non-combatant in order to deceive the enemy and thereby to cause death, it could be outlawed under the Geneva Convention Clause entitled Prohibition of Perfidy. So there's this actual like, genuine like concern about invisibility cloaking devices in, in warfare. And that was just like a year after Camellio came out. But um, uh, in terms of how I started writing Camellio, uh, it all started in 2003, it was, uh, July of 2003. Um, my friend Damien was living in Pacific Beach area of San Diego. Uh, there was this kid named Lee or Doyle. Uh, he said his name was Lee. Later, we were told his name was Doyle. Uh, he had gone, this kid had gone AWOL from Camp Pendleton, which is near uh, San Diego uh, or near where Damien was living in San Diego. And uh, he, when he went AWOL, um, he crashed at Damien's apartment and Damien's apartment was kind of a party house at the time. People were coming in and out at all hours of the day and night. So for Damien, it was totally natural for him to say to this kid, do you want to sleep on my couch? And he wasn't even aware that the guy had, had gone AWOL. You know, he was just this guy who showed up at his house, you know, at a party. And uh, so unbeknownst to Damien, the kid had gone AWOL and had stolen uh, a 9mm Iraqi gun, uh, over two dozen pairs of high-tech night vision goggles, uh, a DOD laptop computer and an entire truck. Uh, and so Damien's uh, throwing this party and uh, this kid Lee pulls out the laptop computer and opens it and the DOD symbol appears on the screen. And my friend Damien says, you got to get that shit 
out of here. Just leave, take that and leave. And the kid's like, no, 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 you don't have to worry about this. You know, they can't track this stuff. And then uh, a short time later, there's a knock at the door and there's a woman there. Uh, uh, I, I call her Lita B. Johnson in the book, though that's not her real name, uh, an NCIS special agent. And she knocks at the door and there's like some goons with her. And she says, may we search your apartment? And Damien, who's the son of a narcotics cop and, and was very well aware of his rights, said, uh, no, do you have a warrant? She said, no, I can come back and get one. And she said, you know, Damien said, please do, and uh, slammed the door in her face. And then he turns to everyone at the party and says, take your shit, meaning your drugs, and go out the back. They immediately throw all their drugs on the, on the ground, and then they run out the back. The cops arrive soon after that, and the NCIS uh, agent. Damien described it as like, Keystone cops kind of thing. They're all like bumping heads. It didn't seem as if they were working in tandem with each other. And none of them cared about the drugs littering the carpet. Uh, all they cared about was these night vision goggles. Uh, the the over two dozen pairs of night vision goggles. That's what they're for some reason they were hyper focused on that. Mm. And uh, they they arrest both uh, Lee slash Doyle and Damien and they take them both down to the jail in San Diego. And at that time, uh, I was in regular contact with him. And I remember trying to call him on the phone. There's like no no answer. And usually he'd call me back really, you know, within a day or so of me calling him. And the whole week goes by and I don't hear from him. Uh, finally, he calls me and he tells me that uh, they took him to, to the jail and they were uh, giving him the Abu Ghraib treatment and uh, uh, interrogating him. A total Kafka-esque situation. He's trying to explain to them, look, I just met this guy the other day. I had no idea. He'd gone AWOL. They don't believe that. They think that Damien's in league with this guy and, like, selling night vision goggles to Al-Qaeda or something. And Damien's, I don't know anything about it. And Damien had been in and out of prison uh, by this point. As I said, his fa father was a narcotics officer. He didn't have a high regard for the police anyway, and he was not a very uh, uh, amenable to cooperating with the authorities. So even if he did know anything, he probably wouldn't have cooperated any, anyway. But in this instance, he actually didn't know anything. Uh, and after about a week, they, they let him go. Um, and he calls me and tells me this whole story. And we figure, well, that's the, wow, that's, a we that's the weirdest story I've ever heard. But that's the end of it. Uh, uh, and obviously they realized he had no knowledge of what was going on. They just let him go. That's the end of it. Then a few days later, he calls me and he tells me that he's being followed around by what he described as a bunch of jarhead looking dudes, like, a, like not one or two, but like a parade mm. of these jarhead looking guys following him down the street. They'd follow him into a 7-Eleven. They'd, they'd follow him into the Mexican restaurant next door. He'd sit down. They'd occupy all the booths around him, stare at him. Uh, at night, they would shine uh, headlights like through his um, uh, through his wi apartment windows. Uh, they would stand outside, right outside the kitchen window, and talk to each other about him. Uh, by the way, uh, interesting footnote. Uh, I, I just posted this on my website, cryptoscology.com. Uh there was a mother in Uvalde during the recent mass shooting mm -hmm. who uh, wanted to go into the school and save her kids. And the cops were like, no. Yeah. So they handcuffed her. Uh, 
And uh, she managed to talk her way out of the handcuffs. She actually, there was a cop there who she knew. She was like, listen, just if you just take off the handcuffs, you know, I'm not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. They said, okay. So they uh, released her from the handcuffs. Immediately, she just jumps over the fence and, and runs into the school. And she saves her kids while the mass shooter is still wandering around the school, shooting up the place. She grabs her kids and, and brings them outside and saves them. And she's been talking about this ever since. And there was an article in in the mainstream newspaper where she says she's being harassed by the local police. She says the same exact stuff that Damien's described. She says they, they, they park outside her house. They, they shine the headlights right. through her window. They're following her around. The same exact stuff that I'm now describing to you regarding Damien was just in the newspaper about Uvalde, the Uvalde police just a few days ago. Uh, so, so they, 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 they're doing all this, what I would describe at this point as low level harassment. Um, and, uh, and at first I'm a little skeptical, uh, because I think is, is Damien having some sort of meth induced paranoia going on now? What, what exactly is happening? This seems this, I mean, I mean, I was well aware of, of like MK ultra and COINTELPRO and, and all that stuff, but this seemed uh, stranger than that, you know, mm. particularly in the sense that they were not trying to hide that they were following him. It, it was there. It was as if it was some sort of performative thing. Like they wanted him to, to, to see them. Uh, so I said, well, why don't you, okay, you say there's all these cars following you. Why don't you photograph them or write down the license plates and uh, send, send them to me? Uh, so he actually did that. And that list of license plate numbers is in the book at some, somewhere in the book. Uh, and I happen to have a friend who worked for the DMV up in uh, Washington State. So I sent him the list of license plate numbers, and the guy actually ran them through the DMV computers. And the guy says they all came back as uh, officially non-existent, which I thought was odd because obviously if he was just paranoid and he thought that his next-door neighbor was following him around, they would come back as real mm. vehicles in San Diego owned by the neighbors. They wouldn't come back as non-existent. The only reason they would come back as non-existent is if um, they were government vehicles, because I knew they were. I knew they existed because he, he took photographs of some of them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that, it was at that point that I thought, okay, uh, there's. I think there's probably some reality uh, to this. Um, so then, then the harassment um, it intensifies. It gets uh, stranger. Um, there's electronic harassment going on. Um, uh, Lita Johnson, the NCIS agent, she would show up at the door. Um, uh, in other words, there's all these people outside har harassing him, having, uh, having him under surveillance. They would suddenly, all those cars would, would pull away and disappear. And then Lita Johnson would drive in and knock at the door. And then uh, Damien would answer the door and she'd be standing there and she would say, have you changed your mind? Uh, have you thought of anything, any information that you want to give us now? And Damien would say, no, because I never knew anything in the first place, so I don't have anything new to give you. Oh, okay, well, here's my card. Um, if you can think of anything, then you call that number on the card, okay? And then she'd get in the car, drive away. All the cards would immediately come back, and the whole thing would start all over again. It's crazy. You know, the headlights to the windows and, and all of it. Yeah. And, 
they start bombarding him with hallucinations. Uh, and I say hallucinations in, in quotes. Uh, in other words, there's one point where he's looking out the window of his living room and outside the window, the, the bonds and the parking lot that's usually there is not there anymore. Now it looks like a, a Boris Vallejo painting with like three moons in the sky. It's a surreal science fiction landscape right outside his living room window. And Damien's like, what the hell is this? And he, he opens the window out of the door and now it's just the bonds and the parking lot, you know? Uh, he's laying in bed one night and they project this silhouette of a hand with a gun in it mm. uh, and the hand would tilt down until the gun like pointed at his head and then slowly tilt up again uh, this like weird black plasma energy crawled across his bedroom floor one night he had this leather jacket was on the carpet this black ball of like plasma energy crawled across the floor then crawled into the jacket the jacket filled up and then crawled across the floor by itself <laughs> Um, he had like friends came over. He was telling me that 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 the the apartment was growing and shrinking. Uh, he'd come in, and the interior of the apartment would either appear to be larger on the inside than it normally is, or or smaller, um, like Doctor Who's TARDIS. Mm. Uh, yeah. And and he had friends who would come over and say, "Is the house shrinking? You know, or is the is your apartment growing?" His friends actually noticed this. You know. Uh, uh, and uh, I should mention the food fight with the feds because that's an important mm. uh, detail. One day he's in the kitchen and there are these two jarhead goons standing right outside on the other side of the fence outside his kitchen window and they're talking to each other about him uh, in a way so that he can hear it and and he's just making uh, lunch so he grabs a bowl and he starts throwing in like some peanut butter uh, baking soda, jello some salsa uh mixes all this crap together and he just runs outside and throws it over the fence and it and it covers these two guys and they go running off into the bonds parking lot uh i was trying to get the stuff this goo out of their hair uh and uh damien thought that was amusing and then uh later on uh, i mentioned that because later on uh, damien a after many weeks have passed damien calls me and he says uh he goes i've got an idea um, I think I'm going to call uh, Lita and I'll tell her that maybe I can help her get these night vision goggles back. He'd heard some rumor that maybe they'd have been sold to like the Hells Angels and they were using them to, to traffic drugs over the border with, hmm. with Mexico. Uh, he goes, maybe I can like get on the payroll or something. You know, maybe I can, you know, make, make lemonade out of lemons, you know. And I go, I don't think that's a good idea at all. If you go there and suggest this, they're going to think you knew this all along. You've mm. been holding out for them. And now you're like holding out for money or something. No, mm. no, no. Uh, I think this is the only way, you know, yeah, I got to go towards the wave uh, rather than run away from it, confront them. Uh, and then maybe maybe this will all work out. I, I, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, but uh, he went ahead and met them on Garnet Avenue at a bagel shop. There's only one bagel shop on Garnet Avenue. So if you're in San Diego, that's the one. And and he met Lita and her superior. So this is how important they they thought he was, that she brought her boss along with her. And he sits down and uh, they buy him a bagel and uh, an orange juice. And he proceeds. Th there's a lot of like illuminating things that occurred during this meeting. Uh, there's one point where Lita's making small talk. 
and she's talking about how she how she grew up in the Pacific Beach area, San Diego, and how it used to be a wonderful place to live. And her father was in the military, and she was in a military family, and this is a military town. And but but over the past like 10, 15 years, the place has deteriorated, and now there's just a bunch of drug addicts living in the area. And, mm. and she and she's clearly talking about Damien. But but Damien has this kind of weird Candide-like quality where sometimes someone's insulting him, but he's not aware of it. So he's actually agreeing with her. He's like, "Oh, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, these these drug addicts. You know, we need to get them out of here. You know, and the more she insults him, the 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 less he's aware that that's what she's doing. And I can imagine her getting more and more frustrated at at, at his non-awareness of her insulting him. And at one, and then at one point he proposes to her and the superior. Well, well, maybe I can help you get these things back. Like maybe if you put me on the payroll. Or at that point, uh, 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 Lita's superior, his face turns red, and he just starts like pounding his fist on the table. He's like, "You're not dictating terms to me. You know, we're telling you what to do." Uh, and Damien's like, "Well, if you're going to be that way about it, you know, fuck it then." You know, and then <laughs> and then the, the superior is like, "You." Oh, uh, we're welcome for the orange juice. You know, I guess that was supposed to <laughs> balance out all the electronic harassment and um, yeah, and uh, and, the, and the unconstitutional surveillance and harassment. Uh, but so that that meeting didn't end well. But there was one point where Damien says to her, uh, "Listen, I'll do anything. I just I don't want to have any more food fights with the feds." And and she laughs and she goes, "Oh." That made us all laugh. Yeah, uh, that was the one moment where she actually like broke script because the whole point of this kind of operation is to make you think you're going crazy. Right. Mm. Uh, and so deny, deny, deny. Are you following me? No, we're not following you. Are you crazy? That was the one moment where she actually kind of just. I can imagine that happening just naturally, like like laughing. Oh yeah, that made us all laugh. Yeah, mm. you know. So she <laughs> admitted that that she was being watched. You know. Yeah. So, so that 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 meeting didn't go well, and, and uh, after that, the harassment actually intensified. Uh, and I should point out that where he was living in in uh, uh, Pacific Beach was within walking distance of an array of uh, corporations, defense corporations, mm. making specializing in exotic weapons. Uh, mm. There was SAIC, um, which was located right across from old town area of san diego right across the street from the whaley house which is known as the the most haunted house in california mm. uh which is interesting we might go back to that that later but they were right across the street from the whaley house they've since moved and and saic is divided into two separate corporations one named lidos and the other saic yeah, there was another corporation called um, ATC, American Technology Corporation. They specialized in um, acoustic bullets, mm. uh, wh which is interesting because there was one night I was on the phone with uh, with Damien, and in the middle of all this happening, and we're talking about all this and what he could possibly do, and suddenly uh, I hear just all these explosions, uh, and and I go, "What the hell is going on?" Damien says that. There's all these shop keys he's got up on the on the shelf. They're just exploding, like for no reason. They're shattering, like glasses shattering. Everything starts shattering, and Damien gets under with the phone under the table. And as I said, Damien's been he's been homeless. He's been in and out of prison. He's he's quivering like a little girl 
on the phone talking to me about how everything's exploding in mm-hmm. front of him. And he said it was like, you know, if he didn't know any better, like poltergeist phenomenon, right. like something out of a mm-hmm. horror movie, you know. Uh, and it wasn't only later on that that we discovered that ATC, uh, American Technology Corporation, was within walking distance of his house and specialized in acoustic bullets. Um, uh, yeah. They would do things where uh, they would they would take all the um, sound away from the apartment, which doesn't sound like well, big deal, uh, but it can have an actual like odd Chinese torture kind of effect. Yeah. Uh, I would be talking to him on the phone, and you know, you're talking to someone, you can hear ambient noise in the background. You could probably. Uh, as I'm talking earlier, you probably could hear some cars go by. Uh, you know, you hear things like that, um, uh, sounds in the background. Th- that all, all that would just disappear. Uh, and Damien would say, oh, it's happening again. Um, and uh, uh, that that's another that's another technology that ATC was specialized in. Hmm. Um, so all that is sounds strange, but it's sort of relatively low level compared to later on when he starts telling me that there are people coming into his house who he cannot see and they're pushing him over uh, and um, uh, invading the house. And at one point he was in his bathroom uh, and he was opening the, the mirror uh, on the medicine cabinet. And as he was opening the medicine cabinet, the, the, in the mirror, he was able to see one of these people behind him for like a half a second. Mm. Uh, and I thought that that was fascinating because I thought, okay, if there are invisible people in his house, if there's some sort of light bending technology that they're using, maybe the mirror, moving the mirror would affect it in some way. And I knew Damien's not an optical physicist or anything. So, so I, I thought, you know, that's, that's not a detail Damien would just dream up on his own mm-hmm. if he was just bullshitting me. Uh, and and I thought, okay, uh, this is now, this is getting like really uh, extremely surreal uh, at, at this point. Uh, but he, the, in terms of the, he said that he would sometimes see the invisible people as these little like dots in the air, like little sparkles, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. like what you see if uh, some people who suffer from intense migraines, they get these auras. Yeah. Uh, he said it kind of looked like that. And, and that they were small, that he could see the outline of these people. They were little sparkles in the air and that they seemed to be small uh, people, um, uh, almost like like jockeys or something like that size, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of makes sense. If you're going to send someone into a covert place wearing optical camouflage technology, right. maybe uh, you would hire people who were small and slender and, and agile, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so uh, there was a point where he was on the beach and he actually saw a tracks in the sand, like of a vehicle, and yet there was nothing there making the tracks in the sand. Um, uh, there was, and this, the, all of this is occurring from between like July of 2003 all the way to about January, February 2004. Mm-hmm. And near the tail end of 2003, Damien, he's lost weight, uh, he's, he's urinating blood. Um, he's got a metallic taste in his mouth, which I knew. I, I knew Walter Boer. I was friends with Walter Boer, who wrote the book oh, yeah. Mind Control back in 1978. Yeah. Uh, uh, Walter and I, uh, I, I, I even collaborated with him on a on a screenplay. Um, 
so I knew from Walter that the metallic taste in the mouth was actually a, a symptom of electromagnetic poisoning. Mm. I yeah. should point out that everyone in Damien's apartment moved, except <laughs> except for him. Right. They all moved out, and new people came in. Uh, and the landlord, he said that the landlord looked as haggard as Damien. Like it, <laughs> it, it was, it was as if um, something was going on with the landlord. Like he didn't want this situation to be going on, but it was almost as if he was aware of it in some way, yeah. uh, and couldn't talk to to Damien about it though. Um, and the very first person who ever interviewed me about Camellia was Tessa Dick, uh, huh. old Phil Dick's widow. Yeah. She, she had a radio show called Ancient of Days, and she she wanted to interview me about it because she said that she read Camellia, and she said this illuminates so much of what me and Phil went through in the 70s. So much of this is so similar. Uh, <laughs> she, she said that Phil would there would be a radio that wasn't plugged into the wall, but voices would come out like insulting Phil. Yeah. Um, uh, she said that when, when they lived in orange, um, all the people who lived in her apartment building, they all moved out and new people moved in with, mm. she saw them carrying this weird machinery into the apartment next door. <laughs> you know, and, and I remember Walter uh, saying to me uh, that he'd always suspected that Phil Dick was a, a victim of, of MK Ultra, after yeah. having read Vallis, mm-hmm. uh, um, Walter came to this conclusion. And it's interesting that in, in a scan of Darkly, of course, it's all about this guy who's a narcotics agent who wears a blur suit, a skin right. tight suit right. that basically camouflages your your identity. Um, uh, I, I at one point, Damien, me and Damien realized the, the similarity between this and some of Phil Dick stuff. And Damien actually said to me at the time, "It's too bad." He goes, "It's as if." they're taking Phil Dick novels and manifesting them in reality. He goes, right. it's too bad Phil Dick didn't write more happy novels. Like if he'd <laughs> written happier books, maybe the, I wouldn't be going through all this. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but um, there was a certain point where I wanted to confirm for myself, even though I, I, I wasn't really doubting it. As, I, I mean, I should mention I'd known Damien. I met him on my 16th birthday. So I'd known him for a long time. But I kind of wanted to confirm that 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 uh, Lita Johnson was a real person, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. and that I wasn't dealing with some sort of uh, phantom, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I said, "What?" She, I said, "You, you." She gave you that card. Why don't you give me the phone number? So he did, and I called the phone number, and she answered the phone. Uh, Special Agent Lita Johnson, uh, NCIS, and I said, uh, "Hi." Uh, I, I'm Robert Guffey. Uh, I live in uh, Torrance. And uh, my friend Damien, uh, he says he's, that he's being followed. Uh, and she, first of all, she was very affronted that I was calling her. She seemed very offended that I was calling her and asking her questions. And she was like, who are you again? You know, oh, I'm Robert Guffey. I'm friends with Damien. Uh, he says, you're following him. And she says, oh, uh, no one in my agency is currently following your friend. Uh, it w- everything she said was this kind of like a CYA, kind of very legalistic yeah. uh, way of answering the question. It wasn't the way you'd answer the question if you actually were caught off guard out of the blue by someone. And you wait, wait, what? He's saying we do what? <laughs> you know, it wasn't that kind of a, a reaction. It was immediately she went into like lawyer mode. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, and and the entire transcript of that conversation is is in is in Camellio. Mm. And and I said, well, are you? Is he still a person of interest? And and she said, oh no, uh, but um, I would advise him. I, I said, so is it okay if he leaves town? Because I thought if he left town, all this would end. It mm. was like a naive thought on, on, on my part. And uh, I said, well, is it is it okay if she if he leaves town? And she said, oh no, I would not advise that. Uh, and I said, well. If he's not a person of interest, then why do you care if he leaves town or not? That might make things difficult later on if he left town. Uh, and and it was, I, I couldn't rectify it. It didn't make any sense. You know, it's a total paradox. How could he not be a person of interest, but she doesn't want him to leave town? Yeah. The conversation didn't, didn't end very well. She, she implied that he was crazy. Um, and after I talked to her, an incident happened where Damien had this waking dream it was one of the few times since he had been arrested where i couldn't get a hold of him like for about three days i, I couldn't get a hold of him and he he calls me and tells me that he'd had this odd waking dream that he was sitting in his living room in the middle of the day and these people came in and and he was kind of like groggy uh like in a twilight kind of state and these people men came in and held him down and he described like putting his arms over his chest, crossing them over his chest, and they, and they kind of peeled his arms back, you know, and they put a needle in his arm, and uh, and he said that I I told him, well, where have you been for the past three days? And and he goes, what are you talking about? He didn't know that I had been trying to get a hold of him for three days. In other words, he had missing time. Right. Right. Uh, and and he said that the thing it felt like a dream, but maybe it wasn't a dream, uh, and uh, that that was very disturbing. So around the same time, he he runs into this beachcomber down at the beach who was selling out this van, this broken down black van, uh, and he was going to buy it. And then his wallet went missing from his apartment, so he couldn't buy it. Uh, so at that point, I I elected without telling him. I decided to send him the money via Western Union. Uh, and if you ever sent anybody something through Western Union, you have to make up a password, a code word, so that the other person can pick it up on the other end. So I called them and I go, okay, uh, listen, uh, I just sent you money via Western Union. Go take that money and go buy that van. Just put whatever you can into the back of the van and just and just take off. And he, he said he was very appreciative that I had done that. And then I said, well, let me give you the, the password. And he says, don't know. Don't give it to me yet. He was afraid that they were listening and they were going to go and intercept the money before he could get it. Yeah. I thought he was being overly cautious, uh, but I said, okay. Uh, he said, I'm going to get my stuff ready. Then I'll call you. So he packs and stuff. He calls me like two hours later and he goes, okay, give me the, the password. I'm about to give him the password, and the phone, the line goes dead. Hmm. Uh, so then I call him back, and I'm about to give him the password. The line goes dead. That happens like like a half a dozen times. Uh, and uh, finally, I realized uh, I remembered that when you make a call to someone, there's a brief moment when the operator says, "Will you will you accept the charges?" And you can hear each other through the phone. So I placed the collect call to Damien, and as the um, uh, as the the operator was saying, would you 
uh, accept the charges, I yelled out uh, a hint uh, uh, as to what the password would be, mm. uh, which is in the book. Uh, and 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 so Damien, I heard Damien laugh uh, right before the line went dead, because <laughs> which indicated to me that he understood what I meant. And and so he went and that, and he got the password and he got the money and he bought the van. He puts everything in it. He left a note on the door that said, I've gone west, which would be into the ocean. Uh, and he said when he told the landlord he was leaving, the landlord could not have been more pleased, more relieved. Uh, the landlord was like, thank God. Thank God it's over. Uh, and and D- Damien gets in the van. Uh, he takes off. And he, he calls me uh, a few hours later and tells me, and keep in mind, this is 2004. Okay, it's not a situation like it is now where drones are like an everyday part of our life and, and there are drones being shot out of the sky above Dodger Stadium, which happened a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, uh, he calls me to tell me there's these little like circular flying saucer contraptions following the van. Uh, ca- calls me from, a, you know, like a payphone in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah, there's these little flying saucer things following me around. Uh, he drives up to Texas and then decides he's going to go to Minnesota, which is where his son was living at the time. He had a young son at the time uh, who was living with the mother in Minnesota. So he's driving through Minnesota and at one point uh, the, the car, the van breaks down in the middle of like nowhere. Uh, and it's like 10 o'clock at night and I get the phone rings and I pick it up and it's some guy with like this heavy, like Southern accent. And he goes, he goes, uh, are you professor Guffy? And I go, yeah. He goes, you know, Damien. And immediately I think, what is, what is this now? Like what's going to happen now? Uh, and, and the guy goes, Oh, I met your friend on the side of the road. His van broke down and uh, me and my friend, uh, we picked him up. We brought him back to our house, and uh, he's telling us about invisible midgets and uh, little flying saucers flying around and NCIS agents and leapfrogging robots and houses that get bigger and smaller. Uh, is this guy crazy? And I go, I go, no, he's not crazy. Uh, let, let me uh, fill you in on this. And so I tell him a shortened version of what I've just told you, and and the guy's the guy had a friend who was like, I can't remember their name, Zeke and Bo or whatever the fuck their names were. <laughs> and as I'm talking to them, I hear the other guy yell out like, Zeke, like, come over here. And, they go, and as I'm on the phone with them, he goes over to the front door and he opens it and he says, there's a little flying saucer flying around outside their house that had followed them from the side of the road where they picked up Damien. And now they're just like totally freaking out. I go, I go, can you put Damien on the phone? Damien gets on the phone and I go, what the hell is going on? He goes, I, don't know, I just got kidnapped by these two guys like out of deliverance. And, <laughs> and like at first they thought he was like possessed by demons or something. They were going to like exercise the demon out of him that made him think he was being followed by invisible midgets. Um, and thankfully I, I talked them out of that. Uh, and uh, he's he's staring at their bookshelf. And he says he's, they got like a copy of like Behold a Pale Horse on the <laughs> you know Protocols of the Elders of Zion or whatever like on the on their bookshelf. Uh, so so they were already primed, I guess, to 
to have a kind of conspiratorial worldview already, so perhaps that helped. Uh, and and uh, so I, I convinced them to to put gas in Damien's van and help him uh, along his way, which they did. Uh, and he, he got in the van, and then after seeing uh, his son briefly, uh, he stops off in a, a little uh, public restroom on the side of the road, and he goes in, and uh, a guy comes in, Damien's washing his hands, and a guy comes in and turns to him and says, if you just give it back, all this will end. Uh, and Damien is freaked out by that and then like a half a second later this other guy comes in grabs that guy by the back of the car like drags him out of the bathroom as if the other guy was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing mm. and damien said the way the guy said it you know if you just give it all back all this will end he didn't say it in like an ominous way it was more like a pleading tone like please just give it all back like i don't want to be following you anymore <laughs> uh, it, it was like that kind of a tone uh, and Damien had decked out the van with like with stickers that said like gaslit and loving it, mm. uh, various like obscene messages on the top of the van so that the drones could get a good look at it. Man, uh, he was trying to have as much fun with it as possible. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and so eventually he ends up in in Winona, Kansas, which is there's like 200 people in Winona, Kansas. If you look it up, you'll see it's like population 156 or something. And, and oddly enough, when he went into this little town and settled down, he actually got a job there. Um, for about like three months or so, the harassment stops. Now, I don't know if that's just a coincidence. I mean, I've, I've been told by other people that sometimes they do just pull back, you know, to make you think maybe it's all over. And then later on, they pull the rug out from under you and start it all over again. So, or it could be that it was such a small town that you know a parade of jarheads following this new guy around in a town of 156 people might like stand out in a way that it doesn't stand out in, mm. in pacific beach san diego uh and also everyone in winona kansas has guns so maybe that's that's something to do with it the optical camouflage technology doesn't make you bulletproof so yeah. perhaps that has something to do with it as well but damien has a time to kind of like collect his thoughts and he starts going on the internet and he's trying to find anything that looks like the invisibility phenomenon that he had seen in, in, in Pacific Beach. And he sees there's a website about um, a Japanese inventor named Toshi who had invented a Harry Potter cloak. You know? yeah. But it only makes you invisible from one angle, hmm. um, uh, not 360 degrees. You know? uh, so Damien's like, that doesn't look like it. He stumbles across his website called Camellio.net. Uh, which was the website of a guy named Richard Schoengert, Richard Neil Schoengert, and uh, who was the first person to be awarded a patent in optical camouflage technology in the early 90s. So he had created a website where he's talking about this technology. <clears throat> Damien says, look, look, read the description here. This sounds like more similar to what I experienced. So I go and I look at the website. And I'm surprised to see that this Richard Schoengert describes himself as a 30 third degree Scottish Rite Freemason. He's a member of the Long Beach Scottish Rite. Mm. Um, and I thought that's fascinating because I am a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason and I'm a member of the Long Beach Scottish Rite. So I, I thought, okay, I must know this guy. Like I, mu I must have met this guy at some point. 
So I email him and I say, hey, I'm a member of your lodge in Long Beach. And I, I write about strange things, and I've interviewed Stephen Heller, the bishop of the Gnostic Church. He writes back, oh, I know Stephen Heller. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm friends with him. Uh, he says, yes, uh, I, uh, I'll talk to you about the Project Camellio. And he says, meet me on Saturday, and then after the rituals, we'll go and you can interview me. And I said, uh, okay. So I tell Damien. Damien drives down. Damien was in a dispute with his landlord at that time. Uh, he really was pissed off his landlord. So he got a bunch of wet cement and dumped it down uh, all the faucets <laughs> in the uh, in the sink and in the bath the bathtub and the kitchen sink as well. And then he just took off and got in his van and left and came to, to Long Beach, uh, meets me. Uh, he drives me down to the Long Beach Temple, uh, the Scottish Rite Temple on 9th and Elm. Uh, he waits for me outside while I go inside. I meet Richard. I realize I have met him before, though not we were not formally introduced before this moment. I had seen him performing some of the rituals on the stage, and he had a very kind of commanding presence and a, and a voice you wouldn't forget. Mm. Uh, so I, I thought, oh, this is <laughs> so. This is Richard Schoenger. I, I have met him before. Uh, so after the rituals, me and Damien take Richard out to lunch at George's Greek Cafe on Pine Avenue in Long Beach. Uh, then we go back to my office, and I really thought that it was very low likelihood that anything that we uh, were going to talk about would in any way tie in with Damien's experiences. I mean, I thought it would be interesting, it'd be worth the interview, but very low likelihood that this would have anything to do with Damien's experiences in San Diego, but the whole conversation is in Camellio. Immediately, he starts, without any prompting at all from us, starts giving us all this information that perfectly aligns hmm. with everything Damien's already told us. He just, he's, first he starts telling us how he's initiated a lawsuit against the, the U.S. military. He thinks they've stolen his technology. Uh, he's hired a lawyer. Um, he's doing Freedom of Information Act requests in this regard. Uh, he says how he met with SAIC uh, 10 years prior to this moment, had pitched them his optical camouflage technology. They had seemed interested at first. He had brought them to the laboratory that he shares with Dr. Lev Berger and him at California, they had given them a tour. They seemed really interested and then suddenly just backed out the last minute. He met with the U.S. Navy. Uh, and, and showed them the technology. They seemed interested and then backed out. And I've seen the, the letters back and forth. I've read the letters back and forth between the Navy and, and Richard and then commending him on, on the technology. Um, the, the, uh, uh, he then says that, uh, he says that the, the technology has many different applications. It can be used for psychological warfare purposes. Uh, it, uh, that's in the original patent, he says. Uh, he goes, you could use it to... For example, against some sort of uh, dictator like Fidel Castro and make him think he's seeing crazy things that aren't mm -hmm. there. Uh, you can make an elephant look like a tree or a tree look like an elephant or whatever. Uh, he, he says, oh, you, you can even make a, a house look smaller on the inside than it is on the outside. Or you can make it look larger. Uh, he goes, you could, you know, you could project an environment outside the window that's not actually there, but it would absolutely look like it was there. Um, just on and on, just point by point by point. And I had told Damien earlier during the conversation, don't interrupt, don't tell him anything yet. Uh, so we let him talk for a while. And then finally, I, 
I turned to Damien and I said, okay, I think you should tell him your story now. And I said to Richard, Damien has a story to tell you. Uh, and I could tell Richard got a little, like he tensed up a bit, like he thought we were about to sandbag him with something. Mm. Uh, and Damien starts telling him the story and I could see the look on Richard's face is he looks a little skeptical. Then when, when Damien mentioned that he saw the guy briefly in the mirror and, and he, he, he opened the mirror and then saw him briefly, Richard seemed to kind of nod, uh, like, okay, that makes sense to me. Hmm. And then when he mentioned that sometimes he would see these little sparkling like auras in the air, he, Richard leans forward and he goes, that's exactly what the technology looks like when it's not being used properly. Hmm. Um, uh, and from that point on, he was like completely on board. Like Richard knew that Damien could not make that detail up. I mean, that there weren't many people on the planet who knew that detail. Hmm. Uh, and by the end of the conversation, Richard says, you know, I think they used you as a guinea pig. You were a convenient guinea pig. Mm. Why not test out this this technology in a real time environment with someone who doesn't know what's going on? That way, you can see when the technology breaks down. Oh, when does he notice us? Um, as I said, it's not bulletproof. So if you're going to deploy this technology in some sort of combat situation or in a real dangerous military situation, you probably want to know when does the technology break down? When does the yeah. target actually uh, see us? Um, and and Richard was, you know, at that point completely uh, convinced that that Damien was telling him the truth. Um, right after that, I thought, well, you know, Damien would probably feel better now, <laughs> you know, knowing that he's not crazy. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but actually, it kind of had the opposite effect. I think Damien maybe was holding on to the hope that that he was just crazy, because mm -hmm. then you could just take a pill and the problem goes yeah. away. Uh, in this case, you can't just take a pill and make the problem go away. <laughs> this is a much more difficult situation to deal with. And he kind of like spiraled a bit after that. Mm. And I actually lost contact with him for a couple of years. Um, but then, then got back in touch with him later and, and, um, you know, he had moved up to the, um, uh, the lost coast area. Uh, there's a, there's a Netflix documentary called murder mountain. Mm. Yeah. where uh, they grow uh, a lot of marijuana and, and uh, that's around the area where he was living in his mom's house and uh, when he moved in the drones started showing up and all the marijuana farmers came out with their with their rifles thinking that the drones were there to photograph their <laughs> marijuana gardens and Damien he didn't want to say no 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 they're here for me you know you don't have yeah. to, you don't have to worry about it but but um uh, Richard Schoengert, uh, the the uh, scientist, uh, who the the first person to be awarded uh, a patent in optical camouflage technology, he uh, I, I did a follow up interview with him in Nexus Magazine uh, a few years ago, I think in 2016, where he talked about his interest in um, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, and uh, and UFOs, and how this led to him creating the optical camouflage technology. Uh, and then earlier this year, I did another article in uh, Nexus called Invisible Predators. And the subtitle was Strange Creatures, uh, Secret Weapons, and Shadow Biospheres. Mm. It was a very long article uh, that's a follow-up to all of this. 
And then yeah. on, on, on Christmas Eve morning of last year, uh, Richard actually passed away at the age of uh, 91. Um, and in fact, there's uh, going to be a memorial for him uh, at the Long Beach Scottish Rite uh, sometime next month. And uh, I'll be going there uh, and attending that uh, definitely. Mm. And and um, uh, I was able to go on Coast to Coast uh, AM not long after he died and, and talk about the fact that he had passed away. And um, he, oddly enough, Richard's life was a, a thing of synchronicities. And uh, when when he died, he didn't know that Love Burger we didn't know that Lev Berger, the, the other physicist who was involved in Project Camellia, who had the laboratory in Hemet, where they brought the SAIC and they brought the, the naval teams to see the technology. Um, Lev Berger had passed away only two weeks earlier. Oh, wow. um, but Richard was not aware of that. He wasn't in a state where he would be aware of much of anything, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, but it was just weird that Lev Berger and him kind of passed away within two weeks of each other. It's like they were joined at the hip and the astral realms, uh, as, as well as on the, the physical plane. Um, but, uh, that, 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 that in a nutshell, that's my short synopsis. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, the story. it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. It's such a fascinating story. I mean, the, the absurdity of the levels of gang stalking, which you refer to yeah. in the book is a uh, street theater. And I think that's like a perfect um, encapsulation of, of how absurd the levels are. Also, like the threshold of um, your friend's tolerance to the harassment is pretty amazing. Um, I think it, it also... I think they were amazed by it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that they... I, I had this image of them almost taking bets. Like, is he going to commit suicide tonight? Yeah, gonna, and and who knows how many people have committed suicide as right. a result? Right, it it seems like a lot. I mean, or at least, yeah. It's like I don't. To what end is this? Uh, are they doing this sort of thing? Just is it? I guess you said like to test out these sort of military technologies. Is that what you kind of think the deal is? Well, it, it's uh, interesting. You know, um, Jacques Vallée. Um, he he wrote a series of Jacques Vallée, the ufologist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jacques Vallée. He wrote a, a series of books called Forbidden Science, which mm -hmm. essentially are his um, his memoirs or his diary entries, and, and each volume covers covers a different decade. Um, the volume four, which came out in 2019, um, it covers the 90s, yeah. and there's an interesting uh, section in the book. He mentions Camilio in a footnote hmm. in volume four. And for his entry on October 6, 1993, it says, uh, Lunch with Fred Beckman. We discussed the continuing wave of UFOs over nearby Clear Lake in the abduction enigma. Is there a back door to the subconscious? Has someone found a way to influence minds, to project hallucinatory experiences? Is that why the CIA encourages its puppets to turn up the heat of paranoia in an already bizarre field? Have they secretly restarted MK Ultra? Mm. Roger Remy, who called from Albuquerque, has been involved in high technology briefings at Edwards, in particular at the Phillips Lab, hidden in the mountains in the eastern part of the base, like a monastery. We say our prayers every morning, and we have visions every evening, one scientist told him. Then there's a footnote. So you go to the footnote on page 495, and it says it is likely that the joke had to do with the fact that the lab 
was testing invisibility devices of the low observable and cloaking type. Mm. So, which would suggest that there was a parallel uh, operation going on. I mean, they were already researching the optical camouflage technology, and no doubt they wanted to come and see how you know how far had Richard gotten. Uh, how did his technology differ from what they were doing? Was it better? Mm. Uh, um, so, you know, the applications for uh, being able to create three-dimensional <laughs> seeming yeah. uh, uh, virtual realities that you can <clears throat> interact with are, you know, what one can imagine uh, what you could do with that technology. I the, the very first place that any segment of Camellio appeared was actually in 2007. I, I published a very brief extract from my interview with Richard in UFO magazine. Mm. Uh, uh, it was... Um, uh, William Burns's wife, William Burns, who co-wrote The Day After Roswell with Philip Corso, uh, Burns's yeah. wife, uh, published it in UFO magazine. And at first, you might, well, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with UFOs. Uh, but I wanted it in there uh, because I wanted the people who read the magazine to read the interview and think, oh, wait a minute. Is this what I'm experiencing? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, because Damien said several times, if if I didn't know any better, you know, if I'd had no context for what was happening to me, I would have thought either the house was haunted or that I was some sort of alien abductee. I, I, I went on a, um, a show called Transcending Reality, and I was interviewed by Melinda Leslie, who's a MyLab and alien abductee. And the other two women on the show were also uh, alien abductees. And when I mentioned the story about the black plasma energy crawling across the floor, and filling up the leather jacket, which sounds bizarre. All three of them looked at each other and said, we've seen that exact thing, mm. that exact phenomenon. Um, uh, so one, one wonders, I, I mentioned in the Invisible Predators article in, in Nexus that on one hand, uh, some people leap to the conclusion, well, it's all, it's all fake. You know, it's, it's all some sort of uh, intelligence agency manufactured illusion, uh, a psychological warfare mm. tool. Uh, and I think in, in some cases it is. Um, uh, but however, uh, at the same time, I, I write about in the article, you know, Charles Fort, Charles Fort writes about invisible entities, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah. reports of that kind of thing back you know, in Germany in the late 1800s. And, and I'm sure that that wasn't CIA technology <laughs> in the late 1800s, you know. So yeah. the whole point of my interview with my follow-up interview with Richard, the one that was in Nexus in 2016, was he talked about how he got interested in UFOs in the 60s. And he noticed how uh, the reports would indicate that they either had some sort of cloaking technology or they were able to teleport very quickly uh and and richard thought well how would you how would we replicate that it, it, just with what we have access to how could we do that kind of a thing and he started thinking along those lines back then like around the late 60s when he was reading these ufo books so in a way you could say that uh, richard's Camulio technology is kind of like it, it's like a cargo cult version right 
of something that already existed. You know, like the old Tarzan movies, and yeah. the, the natives would build a giant, you know, icon out of bamboo and worship it because they saw an airplane fly through the sky. It's Richard's Camellia technology is like that. He's right. with bamboo and whatever he has uh, access to, he's trying to replicate that technology. Um, so. But 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 so I, I like I did a signing for Camilio at Skylight Books in L.A. And um, when I signed my name on this one woman's copy of the book, I I drew a little UFO, like a Georgia Domsky UFO thing underneath my <laughs> name uh, and then dated it. And she said, could you write um, like uh, um, uh, CIA uh, aeronautical vehicle underneath that. <laughs> I said, okay, why? And she said, well, I don't believe in UFOs. And I go, okay. So then I, I wrote, which, you know, CIA uh, aeronautical platform or whatever. And then like drew with an arrow pointing at the UFO. So, so, I mean, there are some people who are just like, it's, it's, it's totally impossible that any of this could actually be aliens yeah. you know, or whatever, or ultra terrestrial beings or whatever. But, uh, it, it seems more likely to me that, the technology that's being used on people like Richard's optical camouflage technology is, is an attempt to replicate a phenomenon that has already existed. Mm. Sure. Uh, yeah. Existed for a long time. So it, Phil Dick's main theme and a lot of his novels was what is reality? That's like the main question that people have to deal with, you know, today, uh, yeah. not just in terms of the extremes of, technology that can actually create holograms but just in terms of you know in my in what i'm reading in the news is that real uh, uh yeah. i think that's why phil dick resonates so much with people now mm. more so than when he was actually publishing because people they they didn't they weren't questioning reality so much uh so now when people, you read phil dick now it feels so contemporary yeah uh, stuff that he was writing in the 50s seems like he wrote it two weeks ago mm, you know? right. for sure yeah um, I, uh, yeah i just uh i'm also like sometimes uh like english lecturer type person adjunct and uh i did a, a creative writing class and i had them read uh phallus and it's really interesting to see what younger people you know people in their late teens early 20s think of something like phallus today <laughs> what did they make of it? Um, mostly, well, because that, that book is so, uh, in some ways, of its time, in that it's like documenting kind of like his scene, and so a lot of people kind of got stuck there, like like they you know they said groovy and stuff like that too much or something <laughs> like that, but but oh, there was it was not as difficult as I thought it was for people. They kind of like uh, keyed into the sort of like unavailability of really knowing what, like what, what's actually happening in, in your life and what like the whole like split personality aspect of it, like I, areas where I thought there might be trouble. Cause it's sort of like for like a novel kind of narratively experimental, but it, everyone was very much on board with it. And I think that's, I don't know. I think it says something about how people are kind of existing today. Valis mm. is a is a tough one to start out with. Uh, yeah. Which what? How? What level was this class? Was it like a a, a beginning composition class? Or no, no. This was like it was mostly 
sophomores and juniors in college. Oh, okay. um, and we, we read some other stuff before that. But it was just, yeah, it was very interesting to see where they where they had trouble, which was more like with kind of superficial stuff and where it, it seemed easier for them to grasp, which was the stuff that, I mean, you know, aside from like the really specific Gnostic, um, like uh, doctrine type stuff, uh, it kind of, it was, I don't know, something about it was more easily je- like digestible than I would have imagined, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I there was a reporter for the LA Times who actually interviewed me. Uh, he had done, this was before Camellio came out. Um, and he wrote this long six-part series, I think, on, on, on Phil Dick. And um, he interviewed me in, I think, part six. And uh, he, I don't even know how he knew to, to contact me. I can't exactly remember how that happened. But he wanted to interview me about using Phil Dick in my classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was using a scanner darkly in yeah. my composition classes. So we're talking like 18 year old yeah. kids. So this is like the first class they have to take, you know, and I'm dumping a scanner darkly on them. Yeah. Uh, but but they, I, I, I think with that one, they seem to connect with it. A, it takes place in Southern California and, and a lot of them, I'm teaching at CSU Long Beach. So a lot of them are from Orange County. So they're recognizing mm-hmm. the geography, mm-hmm. even though, and of course it's funny because of course it says it's taking place in the nineties. In the Right. I, the future because he actually wrote it in the 70s but, yeah but they they weren't taking it in any way as in any way science fictional uh and of course there's only really two science fictional elements in the book one is the substance d the yeah. drug mm-hmm. and what it does and the blur suit like you take right. those two elements out and it's not science fiction anymore yeah. right. but you need those two elements in order for the plot to work so it's like borderline science fiction you know uh so but it was interesting because it's so it's such a realistic uh, portrait of that of that drug Mm -hmm. culture scene in orange county at that time Mm -hmm. that i don't think most of them were even understanding they were reading something that was considered to be science fiction right (laughs) uh i had to like explain the science fiction element oh no this is like science fiction it's taking place in the future in the future you know um (laughs) Uh, but but uh, aside from those, you know, uh, 70s specific moments of slang and things like yeah. that, aside from that, they seemed to to connect with the kind of raw realism uh, right. of it. And, and generally, we don't think of Phil Dick as a realistic writer, but that, that, that book is really a contemporary novel, you know, yeah. uh, a, a mimetic uh, novel, really, in, in in ways more ways than one. You know, if, if you read Camellio and then <laughs> read a Scanner Darkly, then you'll think, mm-hmm. well, there's there's nothing there's nothing science fictional <laughs> about a Scanner Darkly. The, right. Oddly enough, Camellio. One of the ways it it came about was I was teaching a literature science fiction class in 2010, uh, and I had put all this stuff with Damien like behind me. Uh, I I almost didn't want to think about it, and it's interesting because one of my favorite books is Mothman Prophecies. Mm-hmm. And uh, he experienced all that in 67. The book doesn't come out until 75. And mm-hmm. I remember reading an interview with him where he said he didn't want to think about it for several years. It was just too disturbing. Yeah. And I realized that the amount of time that he took between the experiences in Mothman and writing Mothman Prophecies was the same amount of time 
that I took between it happening in 2003, 2004, <laughs> then me actually sitting down and writing about it. Wow. And the thing that prompted it was I was writing, I was teaching this literature science fiction class. And after class one day, one of the students stopped me in the hall and he said, um, can you think of something that is considered to be science fiction, but really isn't? Uh, and I go, oh, invisibility. Uh, and so I, in the hallway, told him the whole story, like everything I just told you. I, like I told him in the hallway. Uh, and by the end of it, his jaw is like on the ground. Uh, and, and he goes, can you tell this story in class next, next class? Uh, I go, okay, you remind me. Uh, and then he, he, he left. And up to that point, um, I couldn't figure out how to write that story. It was just seemed like too many moving parts. And how do you explain the synchronicity of this and that? And mm -hmm. it seems too improbable. And, 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 um, but talking it out to that guy in the hallway, when the second he left, I grabbed a spiral notebook out, sat down in the middle of the hallway and I bullet points wrote down in order, everything I had told him in the order that I told it to him, uh, that became the outline for Camellia, which that summer I sat down and wrote, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, in like, two months wow yeah that's funny that how, how things start like that yeah yeah that's great in a way it's like uh, uh i remember reading an interview with phil dick about ballas and he said he tried several different false starts in writing ballas and he couldn't figure out how to write about it mm -hmm. until he suddenly had this epiphany oh i'll just write what happened right. <laughs> yeah yeah, well, yeah i like, guess he tried radio free album move first and... which is which is a fascinating book yeah uh, but a completely different approach, mm. right? Uh, yeah. Material. I mean, I don't think most people would even know if you gave it to him that that it's his attempt to write the same book. You know, yeah, it seems completely different, you know. But there are these shared themes, you know. Right. Uh, uh, and they're both. And actually, Radio Free Album with this is is a pretty good book. Yeah, I like it. It, <laughs> but it's like at a lower level, you know. It's not as sure. complex mm. as, yeah. as Alice. Uh, but I. A few days later, I was in class, and then he he said, "Oh, remember you were going to tell that story?" Uh, and I said, "I go, oh yeah, that's right." So then I told the story to the whole class, and there was this guy who who was in the ROTC, and he would come to class every day in full military uniform. <laughs> he was always very polite, sir, you know, professor, yeah. sir. Uh, and at the end of the story, everyone's looking at me like, "What the hell?" Uh, and and then this guy in the ROTC, ROTC, he raises his hand uh, and he says, sir, uh, I just want to say I can't reveal exactly what I've been told during my training, but uh, much of what I've been told in my training aligns eerily with what you just told us. And wow. that's all I can say. That's and wild. everyone in the class was like, oh, my God, what the hell? <laughs> then they were a little, a little less skeptical. Yeah. That's so strange. Uh, what What do you think of like the recent resurgence of like Skinwalker Ranch interest and and how Camellio ties into that phenomena? Well, I was actually contacted by a guy who worked at Skinwalker, uh, and he this was in the latter part of 2020, uh, and he said he read Camellio, and he had was convinced that everything he'd seen was of some sort of supernatural origin. But he said, after I read Camellio, everything you write about there is what I saw hmm. on the ranch. Wow. Like the way you describe it and everything that happens to 
Dion, Damien, he's called Dion in the book. His real name's Damien. Uh, he said, everything that happens to him is what happened to me. Uh, so he, his whole paradigm was completely shifted mm -hmm. by reading Camellio because he said it, <laughs> all of it, uh, all of it aligns so perfectly. Um, and I remember reading an article and I think it was um, the Atlantic or the New Yorker with some mainstream publication that published this very long 13,000 word article about Skinwalker and and Louis Elizondo mm -hmm. and all that. And they mentioned the um, Harry Reid um, arranging mm -hmm. for uh, a, a representative from the Pentagon to go to the Skinwalker Ranch. And when he did, he saw all this weird phenomenon. They described it these like weird geometric shapes floating in the air and stuff. And that that's what um, convinced him to go back and lobby to you know, unlock the endless the bottomless uh, pit of uh, black budget mm -hmm. money uh, to, to, to um, fund the research of this. And I thought, well, I mean, if you can make a Boris Vallejo painting look like it's uh, right outside your window, you can make little floaty geometric shapes float around in the air and convince someone to give you money. Yep, right. <laughs> there you go. To, you know, to, to, uh, to research this stuff, you know. <laughs> So, so there's that, there's that possibility. And then also there's, there's the fact that I mentioned earlier that SAIC was located across from the Whaley house, which is, is notoriously the most haunted house in California. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a, what a strange synchronicity, you know, yeah. is, was that a coincidence? Did they build it there because there's something special about the geography or, was that a good place to be? Because uh, if anyone sees you testing weird stuff, they just think it's part of right. the Whaley House right. phenomenon. You know? right. So is the Skinwalker Ranch, if it, if it does indeed have some sort of reputation of having being involved in Native American um, uh, legends involving supernatural phenomenon, is that a good place to test out this kind of technology because if someone happened to stumble across it or see it they would just chalk it up to being oh well that's the spooky skinwalker ranch <laughs> right uh, you know you wouldn't think it was anything other than that yeah yeah that's wild i guess um in a it's kind of an interesting contrast that so you, you had this book camellia that was sort of uh you had to spend some time away like away from the whole thing and now your next book is sort of like something that is still ongoing or I don't know did you think it was going to be ongoing after you finished Operation Mindfuck and now I, it's <laughs> to me it seems if you read not only the, are the books um, Operation Mindfuck and Camellia are published by the same publisher yeah so there's there's that connection but to me if you read them back to back it seems to be one continuous story to me mm -hmm. I mean the Camellia is about one guy being gangstalked Operation Mindfuck is about the whole planet being gangstalked <laughs> yeah <laughs> at the same time you know it's like they stepped it up that's a good and, point yeah and a lot of the gangstalking techniques I talk about in in Camellia where Damien would roll into town and he would get the sense that people had been there before him uh, that somebody had had said something about him and people would interact with him in weird ways. You know, yeah. um, I've, I've heard this from, from other people, you know, you know, um, this guy, he, have you, have you seen a picture of this guy? Uh, he, he's suspected of, of, of wanting to do things 
for that. That's one of the things in the book. Uh, someone someone said that they were told, oh, uh, we, we've been told that he wants to do something. <laughs> it's just like vague. It's like, oh, is this, that's pretty bit vague, but it's like ominous at the same time. Oh, he yeah. wants to do something. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, I've heard this from other people uh, that they'll spread rumors that they're pedophiles or Satan worshipers mm. or terrorists or, yeah. Uh, and, and that's the whole uh, QAnon thing is, is, you know, I, I mean, Mark Evanier, who's a comic book writer. And um, he said the other day that the pedophile now means um, uh, people who don't want to let Donald Trump do everything that he wants to do. <laughs> so that's like the new definition. Um so much of the the techniques that were used in these gang stalking operations that were very much focused on a single person, mm. those same techniques have now been used uh, uh, mm. on the internet uh, and the digital soldiers, as they call themselves, of the QAnon occultists, uh, will will use those same techniques and troll people online. But it's the right. same type of gang stalking, surveillance, and harassment. But but now it's online. Mm. But sometimes, right. sometimes face to face as well. Right. And but it also seems like it's like outside of the bounds of some sort of at least like maybe in the Camellia situation, there was some authority kind of doing it. But with QAnon, it seems like it's kind of just leaked into the general public, and just everyone's kind of that, that's running the best, this software. That's, right. That's the best way to do it. Yeah, because uh, yeah. there's a certain point where, particularly if, if you're actually being surveilled and harassed, there's a certain point where they can just um, back off entirely. Yeah, and you'll begin to see you'll become genuinely paranoid mm, at that point sure. for, for a good reason, <laughs> right? Because yeah. you've actually been surveilled and harassed to the point where now you're questioning everyone's motive. Yeah, so yeah. they can just pull back and let you just unwind mentally. Mm. And and you'll 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 start stalking yourself, essentially. I hmm. Phil Dick Phil Dick mentioned this. I remember in an interview, Phil Dick said there was one night he was driving along and he saw a police officer, and he he just he had he was suddenly overwhelmed with the desire to get out of the car and just surrender to whatever the police <laughs> officer wanted to accuse him of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the 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 techniques that are used in the QAnon um, gang stalking. Uh, operation are very similar mm. except that the, in this case the the digital soldiers uh, the digital warriors or the people who are involved in January 6th they all think they're doing this of their own volition mm. right yeah that's kind of what I was yeah that's... and and that <laughs> and ironically I mentioned in the book uh, that I talk I talked about this documentary out of shadows yeah. which is so like a QAnon recruitment video, though they never yeah. mentioned QAnon at any point in the documentary. I remember uh, that. That's weird. It's so strange. The, the, they do talk about Pizzagate yeah. at, at the end, and I, ironically, they they pull in uh, Michael Aquino, mm. who, when Out of Shadows debuted on the internet, which I think was around like maybe April of 2020, it was like right around the time the yeah. lockdown started. Um, they they pull in Aquino, Aquino who had who had passed away a few months prior to that, right? Almost like under the radar. Hmm. I, I don't think his death was known to anyone for like a year after it happened. Yeah. Uh, uh, they 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 the, the the documentary starts out with a valid premise. It starts out saying 
that Hollywood is often used as a propaganda machine, you know, for the, for the government, uh, which is, which is true. I, I'm writing a book now called Hollywood haunts the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole chapter in there about that very thing, you know, yeah. uh, going back to world war two, maybe even earlier, Hollywood is often used, uh, as propaganda disguised as fiction. Uh, I mean, Top Gun in the '80s is a perfect example of that. It was it sure, was funded, sure. it was funded directly by the yeah. by the military, uh, right. and 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 so that's a valid subject to explore. So the first like eight minutes of the documentary, it focuses on this, and then it goes off in, into the Twilight Zone, and then they pull in Michael Aquino, uh, which I thought was odd because Aquino is not really connected to Hollywood. You know, I mean, he, Aquino was in the military he was uh, a propaganda expert you know an expert in psychological warfare and he was also a satanist or uh technically he was a setian yeah temple of set actually yeah. left <laughs> the, the church of satan because because uh, uh uh anton levey wasn't hardcore enough for him <laughs> uh uh so so he, he forms you know the temple of set um and so he was an occultist so in the middle of the satanic panic of the 80s uh, Aquino gets the spotlight shined on him. He appears on an episode of Oprah, um, and and he's accused of supposedly running a pedophile ring uh, in San Francisco at the Presidio. He's found innocent of those charges. Um, he you know and and he has a, like an ominous quality about him. He's got this severe widow's peak. He, to me, he always looked like uh, an overfed, aging Eddie Munster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, he and his wife, Lilith, uh, appeared on Oprah Winfrey and um, uh, talked about Satanism and, and occultism. Um, and, and But he, he doesn't really have any connections to Hollywood, as far as I know. But yeah. in the middle of this documentary, they start they start talking about him. And and they they mention that he wrote this paper called Mind War, mm. and they they imply that Mind War is these satanic techniques, and and how to use these satanic techniques to control the population. Okay, if you read Mind War, which I've read, uh, and of course it's it, most people probably would have come across it in in uh, Behold Behold a Pale Horse. William Cooper <laughs> includes it in there. It, it basically he was asked by his superior Paul Vallelay. Uh, to write this paper, Mind War, uh, and the purpose of it was post-Vietnam. Uh, what do we do? Uh, how can we make the field of psychological warfare evolve? Uh, what, what, what do we need to do to um, repair uh, psychological warfare operations post-Vietnam? So Aquino writes this whole uh, fascinating essay about, well, what we need to do is in this new electronic environment that we're entering into, uh, we need to do psychological warfare in such a way where the targets uh, of the operation will think that they're making all these decisions on their own. So he talks about creating a rapport between mm-hmm. the, the, the person spreading the, the disinformation and the, and the person receiving the disinformation. And the person receiving the disinformation has to feel like they have a rapport mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that from that point on, they can go and do everything that the psychological warfare officer wants them to do, but uh, but seemingly on their own. Uh, and 
and the Outer Shadows documentary mentions this. They show the title page where you see it says by Paul Vallelay and Michael Aquino, but they never mention the fact that Paul Vallelay is what the one military guy who came out during the campaign and said that QAnon was real, Q was real, <laughs> Donald Trump does not trust the intelligence community, so he's relying on this team of about 500 different like retired and current intelligence officers and they're feeding him information and Q is tied in with this network and a lot of the QAnon people were like oh my god this real, this real guy this highly respected intelligence officer Paul Vallelay he's saying that Q is real this is our first confirmation that it's real and, and never never mentioning the fact that he is friends and colleagues with Michael right. Aquino and they co-wrote Mind War together uh <laughs> So everything, all the techniques that are described in Mind War perfectly describe QAnon. Mm, right. You, know, you have to create the rapport first. Uh, and, and, I, and, and then the digital warrior on the other end then decides, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to storm the Capitol. But, uh, you know, they don't even know why they're doing it <laughs> as it's happening. Most mm. of them. Because most of them probably went there not thinking that they were going to storm the Capitol. You know, uh, uh, and 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 that's why a lot of them, you know, afterwards were like, "What the just, what just happened?" <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, there've been like QAnon suicides. You know, people who were suddenly, you know, faced with serious charges, <laughs> you know, went home and and killed themselves because they were suddenly waking up out of this weird dream that they had, and what the what what just happened? Mm. Uh, and and uh, QAnon the 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 way that it interacts. It asks questions. It doesn't make statements. You know, right. you read the Q post. It's just a series of questions. So you feel like you're answering the question. You're doing the research. You're answering the question, and you're coming to the only logical conclusion. But right. actually, you're reaching the conclusion that's already been planted in your head. <laughs> yeah. and, and, but but by asking it as a series of questions, you've created that rapport between mm. Q and the people who are the the Q and ons, and mm. and they feel like they're reaching this conclusion entirely on their own. Oh. Yeah. I remember when it was first um, coming out, I, and I, you mentioned this a bit in the beginning of the book, you're kind of talking about like, I, your friend is telling you about it and he says there's no links you can really follow. Cause I remember when 2017, 2018, when QAnon was, people were starting to talk about, it. I, I don't know if you know, like Tracy Twyman, she was someone who I, followed pretty closely while she was around and sure. she kind of fell onto the Q thing and I was right. I, I didn't really get get that as much but I was trying to kind of follow along and I didn't really feel like diving into like 4chan and 8chan to, and so it was kind of like and I think that must be part of it right like trying to like you find it yourself by putting in like this sort of minimal amount of work right right yeah, and they call it research <laughs> right yeah yeah research yeah so it's kind of like a, maybe that's like an, an initial reward or something that kind of like gets you sort of roped into this weird zone. Um, yeah, yeah. It's the little sweet pellet that the rat gets in, in the maze. <laughs> right, yeah. And then encourages them to continue through the maze. The way I think of it is like, um, uh, there's a podcast called The Farm. Uh, yeah, we just uh, had him on, yeah. Oh, oh did you? Okay, <laughs> yeah. Snyder. Yeah. He did this great interview with uh, James Scaminacci, who, uh, who actually has a background in military uh, mm -hmm. matters. And um, 
Uh, I mean, he actually has a military intelligence background. He, he talks about how, how he's watching uh, the events unfold on January 6th. And he said the MAGA crowd was just a cover for the real attack. And I don't have a military background, but I, I came to the same conclusion when I was, mm. I was watching it. I thought the, the way I describe it to people is the QAnon architects are the equivalent of like the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, which was mm. run by Joseph Goebbels. Mm. And, yeah. and then the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are kind of like the brown shirts and the SS, respectively. Um, uh, and, and almost all the Oath Keepers are enlisted men. Uh, you know, about two hundreds of the people who stormed the Capitol were, were military trained right. people. Uh, and and um, so you had the people who were just going there to peacefully protest. But then you had the, the, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who were who had a different agenda. Uh, and, and then those those are the guys you see with the zip ties and, and the full on camouflage mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, uh, with cameras mounted on their chests. Uh, and it seems clear to me that it was only a series of synchronicities that prevented January 6th from being like, you know, November 22nd, 1963. I mean, it uh, it was just mm. one particular security officer lured them away. Mm. Uh, the doors were unlocked to where Pence was and Schumer and Pelosi. They were just one unlocked door away from them. And this one security officer at, literally leered them away, and they went chasing after him, while while Schumer and Pence and all the others were able to escape. But I'm sure the intention was, okay, we're going to hold these people hostage. We'll live stream this, uh, and, and, you know, and, until they they give Trump uh, the election. Um, uh, which, which is kind of like you know, or we'll start beheading people uh, while live streaming it. A real, you know, just a Al Qaeda kind of technique, which is hilarious because they would profess to be nothing like, you know, Middle Eastern <laughs> Arabs uh, while while doing the same exact. So uh, I think it's clear, you know, mo- most of those people they just got swept up in it. But then you had those military trained people, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and all that was was engineered. I mean, they they knew they were going to use the MAGA people and the QAnon people as the cover to go in and 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 do this hmm. and it's funny it's uh, uh, just a few days before operation mindfuck was published which was on july 6th just yeah. a few days before q crawls right. out of the woodwork and starts posting again right yeah uh, we were going to ask you about that is, has he kept posting or was it just like it was like the day after roe v wade was struck I think down it was right the same day oh, same was, day i think yeah. it was the same day and I, it's it's pretty. I, I, it would be humorous to think that he did it as as a way of uh, helping to promote Operation Mindfuck. Uh, <laughs> that would be nice to think. But yeah. uh, in reality, I think it's obvious that it was in direct response to Cassidy Hutchinson's damning testimony in the yeah. January six hearings, uh, with with Trump saying, "Oh yeah, I know that they've got guns. They're not here for me." Um, I mean, if if they can. Um, confirm that through more than just one source uh that'll be very interesting Hmm. uh but i think that shows you like how nervous they are uh, particularly about her testimony and about the hearings in general that somebody said we got to pull q out of the woodwork uh because 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 one of the first posts i think the last post q did was about 
Cassidy Hutchinson and, and casting right. aspersions and saying, uh, you can't believe, you know, she's a deep fake or whatever. And then Trump comes out and says, I don't even know her and proceeds to tell you all this information about why not to believe her because of his personal experience with her. I, I thought you said you didn't know her. Right. Yeah. And, and then there's photos of them together. Uh, so obviously there was, there was some, somebody made a phone call and said, yeah. you know, pull, pull, pull Q out of the closet. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and, and um, meanwhile, there were, there were all these mistakes that Jim Watkins made where he like responded to, it's just, it's just someone's a uh, question, like using the, the Q account and then Ron Watkins, uh, right. um, and then Jim Watkins said, well, he has access to, to quantum technology computers, and that's why there was some sort of mistake. Um, I, I know is that Fred how you Ratt think it is, the, the Watkins? You're, you're pretty sure that's kind well, of the... I, 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 I say in the book that I don't, yeah. think was, I don't think it was ever one person. It was all... Right. I, I called them Team QAnon. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm sure the Watkins were, were posting, but other people were probably posting as well. Yeah. You, you're an English teacher. You teach creative writing, so I'm sure you're used to analyzing literature analyzing sure. stories uh, i from early on i was reading the stuff thinking the styles change sometimes like oh I, yeah I, I had a feeling like it's like reading a series of hardy boys novels that are written by different people but it's all the same name <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> so sometimes the style will, will change slightly uh uh yeah. I, I i thought from the beginning just like analyzing it as as a literature teacher that mm. this is not all one person writing it it's several different totally. Yeah, that's kind of, it seems like you have to come to that conclusion because because of the style changes, but also like the sort of, I don't know, not, not a change in mission, but like things just kind of shift very suddenly and over the course of the whole thing. Hmm. Well, yeah, that, that was one thing in, in Operation Mindfuck, particularly in part yeah. three, was um, the middle section, part two, was published on Evergreen Review and I guess right. that got enough attention that Dale Peck, the editor of the Evergreen Review, asked me to do a follow-up. Yeah. And he said, could you do something like, a, you know, where does QAnon go now post-election? <laughs> and, and at first I thought, oh, man, I don't know if I want to wallow in the QAnon mud long <laughs> enough to, to do that. But then, then like a second later, I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to document the collapse of a belief system in real time. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it, it didn't collapse. <laughs> It just goes on and on, you yeah. know, but, but, but nonetheless, it would be fascinating to document how the story keeps changing. Mm. Uh, uh, and so I, no one could possibly monitor every QTuber in existence. So I decided to stick with the two I had started with, yeah. uh, in my salon series, the five part salon series I did in 2020. So there's, there's, yeah. there's Rick Renee, uh, and, and his weird friend, Gene, who claims right. to have all these intelligent sources. Um, and, uh, I, I would write down, you know, they would make a prediction. This is going to occur on March 24th or whatever. Then you get to March 24th. It would never happen. At <laughs> first, they would actually try to explain why it didn't happen. Yeah. Then as it went on, they just stopped explaining it. They would just <laughs> drop it. Like they never said anything. You would get to the day that something extraordinary was, was supposed to happen. And then they would just act like it was the same, you know, just a normal day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and um, one of the things that that fascinated me about it early on when I when I started deeply looking into it was that they would take all these conspiracy theories from the past that were essentially anti-fascist at their core, right. uh, and and even if um, leaving aside whether 
it's true or false, like doesn't matter in, in, in this particular context. The, the conspiracy theory in question would essentially be anti-fascist, whether it was like May Brussels theories mm. or even the stuff in Operation Vampire Killer 2000 from the early 2000s, which were written by conservative libertarians. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, the message was always anti-fascist. Mm. Uh, they would take that original conspiracy theory and then flip it. So, so for example, like in the early 90s, you had Operation Vampire Killer 2000, you had the beginnings of the militia movement, you had like Linda Thompson going around giving lectures about the, the documentary she'd made called Waco the Big Lie. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and constantly they would talk about um, the coming concentration camps and martial right. law. FEMA camps and stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, at, at any moment, the Christian patriots are going to be rounded up and yeah. put into concentration camps. Uh, and, of course, that never happened. But from the early 90s onward, there's this paranoia about that. Then mm -hmm. in October, uh, November of 2017, uh, Q shows up and starts posting. And within a matter of weeks, manages to take the central concern of these people, you know, for decades worrying about the concentration camps and martial law and flips it so now they're actually welcoming martial law mm. yeah. like that's the answer the answer is martial law i mean that was one of the QAnon slogans was like the military is the only answer right yeah uh and and in fact i and i i document this in the book the days leading up to january 6th gene uh, goes on the blessed to teach show and tells the audience if you see tanks rolling down the street or if you see military troops don't engage with them. Don't pull out your guns. Don't shoot at them. Uh, lay down your weapons because they're there to help you. <laughs> right. And, and I'm sitting there listening to this just going, how is it possible yeah. that they were able to take this obsession that these people had for two decades or more and then flip it in a matter of a couple of weeks because of anonymous posts on, on 4chan? It's, it's so, that's yeah. amazing. That, that's an amazing sociological experiment. Right. I remember that because, yeah, there was like, it felt suddenly like this sort of, I I don't know if you'd call the conspiracy culture like a counterculture in the way that that first comes to mind, but like they took this sort of inherently, you know, countercultural thing and they turned it into like this, like ideological army for the person currently in power. Oh, right. like, yeah. Yes. That was the, that. And that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that, that anyone figured out that that was possible. It, you have to like give them credit for that, that that's amazing yeah. that you would think of that <laughs> and then yeah. actually, and then actually be able to pull that off. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and they would take, I've, even, even the militia people, even though they were like hard, right, like libertarians in the, in the early nineties, they, they were not fans of the Republicans. They weren't fans of George Bush. Right. Uh, the whole point of Operation Vampire Killer 2000 is they're warning people about the increasing militarization of the police. Um, and, and that's the main theme of that, is warning people about the police becoming more militarized. And these are being right. written by ex-law enforcement agents or law enforcement officers at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's inherently anti-fascist at its core. Uh, even though they were hard right libertarians, yeah, or May, May Brussel, uh, who was the queen of conspiracies. That's 
that was what she was known as in the you know late 60s 70s into the early 80s when she yeah. passed away uh she had a theory about uh operation chaos and she she thought yeah. that different rock stars were being assassinated like jim morrison and Janis joplin right. because they had this you know anti-vietnam war stance and and uh, whether that's true or not the, the, that that's an anti-fascist conspiracy theory you know definitely yeah they in out of shadows they take that and they flip it so that now the rock stars are actually the perpetrators of the conspiracy right. frank mm. zappa and jim morrison mm -hmm. uh because their fathers were in the military they were actually the mk ultra progeny of the right. u.s military who were sent out like johnny appleseed to spread lsd and uh you know socialism uh, amongst the otherwise uh, church-going uh, children in America. Of course, in reality, in my experience, uh, high school students don't need any encouragement from the CIA to, to, to experiment sure. with drugs. Yeah. Um, though there is an overlap of the CIA with the early uh, LSD experiments, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, and that's the interesting thing. They, you know, QAnon will take something that is true. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, yes, MKUltra, they were involved in, in early LSD and, and you find Later on, like the slang that enters into the counterculture, like uh, dropping uh, a tab of acid or going on a trip, you find these phrases in CIA documents in the 50s. How did the slang enter into the culture? How is that? Uh, uh, and, and so that, that's something that actually is, is true. Uh, so when you have a mainstream, uh, mainstream journalist for decades saying, there are no conspiracies that, that that's ridiculous like even mentioning it you just put the tinfoil hat on because you're crazy yeah so when you have that as the as the mainstream stance for so long and then someone comes along and says they can demonstrate that that's not true oh look mk ultra this is a real thing here are the documents uh real you know children were experimented on women uh yeah. mental asylums were experimented on prisoners were experimented on that actually happened mm. so now then they then but then the reaction is then all that stuff all that other <laughs> stuff must be true as well yeah right? yeah right so if that's true then then also the illuminati are kidnapping children and taking them into the underground grottos extracting adrenochrome right and using it to make tom hanks look <laughs> as youthful as he was in his 20s because yeah. of course he does right uh, uh, and and uh, and it's an, and what also fascinated me was that that kind of culture vulture aspect of it of picking bits and pieces yeah. from mm -hmm. pop culture. Yeah. We mentioned just before we we started this conversation, we briefly mentioned Richard Shaver. I mean, there's yeah. elements of Richard Shaver in QAnon, the obsession with with uh, children, people being kidnapped by subterranean creatures uh, right. and taken down underground and experimented on. I mean, that was a that's a main theme that runs throughout all of Shaver's stuff. Right. Um, uh, and even, I, and I would, I think I even mentioned this in the book that Richard Shaver, that was almost the first LARP. Uh, that was the first live action role-playing game because when Ray Palmer started publishing Shaver's stuff in amazing stories, they would get interactions, you know, reactions from the readers, sure, yeah. people like Terry, who were the, the infamous Terry Rister right. or, or, or Fred Crisman or these people. Uh, and Fred Crisman seems to be like a, a version of Paul Valley from mm. back in the, in the fifties and sixties, he gets, you know, uh, inserts himself into the Shaver mystery, JFK, Maury Island, UFO. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, and and pops up and and tries to manipulate these narratives. Very similar. It'd be interesting to do a whole <laughs> comparing Valet and, mm. and Fred Grisman in a more you know point by point way. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> people would go out and go and 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 actually do spelunking expeditions, <laughs> uh, uh, trying to find the tunnels in to the Daros, the subterranean right. realm of the Daros and the Taros. And they then they still would, do too. Yeah. And they still yeah, yeah. do. Uh, and they, and they would write letters to Ray Palmer and Palmer would publish the letters. And then they would, that would be evidence yeah. that yeah. that Shaver stuff was true. And then they would, they would then uh, weave those elements into the story. So mm. just like with, with QAnon, you know, the, 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 the digital uh, warriors would post their, interpretations of what he was posting and then feed those reactions back right you know so it's this interesting loop of confirmation bias mm. uh so and then they take elements from from you know hp lovecraft uh the subterranean creatures of the great old ones you yeah. know uh uh mix that with shaver um even the adrenochrome thing you know uh comes sure. from fear and loathing in las vegas right yeah um, and and I would read. I, I published a novel in 2017 called "Until the Last Dog Dies," and it's all about a pandemic, uh, a virus that goes pandemic around the world. It doesn't kill you; it just takes your sense of humor away. It it atrophies the sense of humor portion of your brain, and it's told. The novel is told from the point of view of a stand-up comedian in L.A. And halfway through the book, he comes down with the virus. Researching the QAnon stuff, I thought, man, I don't know. I I may have predicted something that actually came true, <laughs> uh, because I would read these very just sour-faced analyses of Hunter S. Thompson. Not it's like they don't even know it's supposed to be funny. Of the scene of of Dr. Gonzo saying, "Yeah, I represented the Satanist freak. He didn't have enough money to pay me, so he gave me some adrenochrome yeah. Yeah. extracted from the pineal gland of a live." you know, living human being, it'll take you higher than you've ever been before. Um, which, and I have my own personal theories to where Hunter S. Thompson got that idea. Yeah. Uh, there's, he mentions in his book, one of his collected letters, uh, that he, he has, he keeps, um, a list of the books he's reading. And he mentions that he read brave new world by Aldous Huxley. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fair to assume that he probably also read brave new world revisited. Uh, the follow-up book of essays, mm -hmm. which yeah, I often yeah. use in my in my class. Um, and if you read, there's it's either chapter four, five, six, or seven. There's a section where Huxley talks about adrenochrome mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's an actual chemical. It's formed in the brain, but it's not a, a recreational drug. Yeah. But if you if you read the paragraph, you could see where a young Hunter S. Thompson might read it and latch <laughs> onto it. Like, oh, that's a great idea, yeah. you know. And then, like, filed it away until Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and then plants it in there. Mm. Um, if, if you go back and look at Brave New World Revisited and read the section with Adrenochrome, and then hey, keep that in mind when you're reading it, I think that's a a fair analysis on my part. Mm. Also, uh, there's a, a film from the late '50s called The Leech Woman. Mm. It's a it's a horror film film about this expedition into Africa and there's this tribe there that will extract fluids from uh, the pineal gland of a living human being they have to kill you in order to extract it and then the leech woman will drink it and become young again mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and it's just this just cheap jack black and white uh, yeah. 
horror film from 59 or 60 mm. uh, made by Universal Studios. So, so that, the, the idea of uh, pulling in these elements from like Pulp Fiction mm. and, and pop culture and weaving them all together in this giddy kind of way uh, is on one hand brilliant <laughs> yeah. and then and then on the other hand extremely uh insidious i i you know the podcast conspiracy normal mm-hmm. yeah. uh adam sane's uh podcast he he interviewed jonathan bankin um last uh, year yeah. uh jonathan bankin just wrote a book called uh close to zero mm-hmm. and the, the subtitle is how donald trump fulfilled his apocalyptic vision and paid his debt to P- putin with a devastating biological warfare attack on america that's a long title mm. uh but um it's an interesting book i i don't know that i agree with everything in the book but and i haven't read the whole book i started reading it uh it seems fascinating but mm. you know bank uh wrote the, the 50 greatest conspiracies of all time yeah. back in the early 90s and during the interview with adam saying he was talking about january 6th and he said this and i've heard this from other people who were involved with the conspiracy research stuff and in in the zines in the 80s and 90s bankin said that he he almost felt a little guilty uh for promoting Mm. this early on in the beginning in the early 90s and he he said i i always saw it as a as an inherently counter-cultural thing to do of of questioning consensus reality like Mm -hmm. there could be no way that that could ever be hijacked Right. And yeah. and he said he said even today I feel like that's totally valid like that was a totally valid point of view for me to have mm. uh, in in the early nineties he said however nonetheless there is a kind of trace of of guilt about it and 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 he had sort of a more balanced view of it but I I communicated with someone else who was extremely well known in the conspiracy field particularly in the eighties and nineties kind of dropped out uh, I I promise not to tell anyone that i was interacting with him (laughs) in any way so uh but he he was like very uh guilt-ridden over i mean he he (laughs) felt like i almost felt like i had talked him in off the ledge or something like uh that that he was like directly responsible uh for for january 6th because of the things Uh he talked about in the in the early 90s I think that's going a little overboard <laughs> to, yeah. to take on that much responsibility for something. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, there's no way that someone like Jonathan Vankin or even like Robert Anton Wilson uh, could have known uh, that someone would come along and figure out how to hijack that. I mean, that's it's similar mm-hmm. to uh, if you read Andre Breton's Manifestos of Surrealism, he talks about how when he and, and Salvador Dali and, and Max Ernst first came up with this whole surrealist movement, the whole point was to uh turn upside down consensus reality uh the reliance on the church uh um um and and that it was essentially inherently countercultural movement and so later in the 50s Andre Breton was amazed that Madison Avenue was able to uh hijack aspects of surrealism and use it to sell products mm. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that um that's why in cryptoscatology there's that chapter you named the dwarves uh, where i talk about guerrilla surrealism and corporate surrealism uh and, and that you have this mm. battle uh between the two um and and so 
in a, in a way, I guess, uh, the, the trajectory of conspiracy research from the late 80s and early 90s to now, you could probably write an essay paralleling that with surrealism hmm. and, and how that was hijacked yeah. by Madison Avenue and corporations. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think these people need to feel guilty. <laughs> anyway. No, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's like even now, like knowing what we know about the sort of potency for these things to drive cultural forces to really strange places, I don't think the sort of inquiry into these subjects is inherently bad, you know? Mm. No, you know, in fact, you could argue, in fact, that the original hijacking occurred when Robert Anton Wilson and his Discordian friends hijacked it from the right wingers yes. right. <laughs> yeah. in the first place, because it was originally the, the John Birch Society who was yeah. spreading the stories about the Illuminati uh, and the socialists and, 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 you know, mind control fluoride in the water. Yeah. <laughs> and Robert Anton Wilson and his friends said, Oh, you know, why don't, that's a good idea. Why don't we take that and we'll accuse those guys of being the Illuminati and Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. And, <laughs> and, and I, I love the fact that, that Robert Anton Wilson has enough of a sense of humor that he didn't stop there. Like it, it, Robert Anton Wilson and his Discordian friends had a sense of humor that was more inherently artistic than the QAnon architects because mm. they went to the trouble of accusing themselves of being part of the conspiracy. They actually went out of their way to write letters to like Playboy saying Robert Anton Wilson is a member of the Illuminati. I know this. Right. You know, meanwhile yeah. they're the ones writing the letters. Yeah. Um, I, I love that kind of, you know, um, pranksterism mm. right yeah that's yeah you need that otherwise it kind of becomes this joyless i don't know what like i guess just paranoia yeah well that, that's i I, uh, I had a friend who was involved in uh the q post early on mm. uh, uh because i i was aware of them but was essentially ignoring them yeah uh, until the beginning of the lockdown uh and and uh, this this friend of mine was there and saw the first Q post when it popped up and he said that he and his friends were convinced that whoever this was at least the first two or three posts were actually being posted by someone with access to the white house mm. he posted these photographs of, of the christmas tree inside the white house and uh, and and it seemed like it was actually someone who had a, who had access yeah and they they took it at face value that whoever this Q was was actually genuine at least mm. the first initial post uh, and so, he, but so after that, he said it became a kind of giddy kind of Q posting where he and his friends, they were all posting his Q. And then some outsider would come in and try to apply logic to it and go, this whole thing doesn't really make any sense. And they double down on the guy and go, oh, get out of here. You know, you're a member of the deep state. You don't know. Uh, and so he said it was all like in fun at, at the beginning. Uh, and he said that it was strange because he said it was a kind of a conspiracy theory that had a, an element of hope to it. Mm. That the whole theme of the message was don't worry. Uh, there are people inside the white house who are um, uh, helping out Donald Trump and we're going to, you know, put him on the right path. And, and, and of course, you know, hopeful is a relative term. I mean, mm. hopeful to them because they were supporting right. Donald Trump. But, but uh, he, he asked me, is there any other conspiracy theory that you can think of that started out, kind of like as a joke or or a satire and so in the book i mentioned uh there's the report on iron mountain which came out in in the late 60s 
uh, edited by uh, Leonard Lewin, uh, which was supposedly a real government document uh, that um, uh, purported to be the minutes uh, of a uh, meeting where they were talking about these plans they had in the future uh, uh, and how they had it where they were going to fake terrorism uh, to keep the military industrial entertainment complex going. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there were these stages. They were going to fake terrorism. And they were going to finally, the final stage was to fake an alien invasion, mm-hmm. uh, which is funny because I've always wondered if Alan Moore, who wrote the Watchmen graphic novel and gave a blurb to Operation yeah. Mindfuck, uh, I, I always wondered if he was aware of Report on Iron Mountain because, of course, in the graphic novel, that is exactly the whole plot by... Yeah. Ozymandias is right. to fake an alien invasion and bring the world together and create utopia. Um, uh, and, and so later on, uh, le- now Leonard Lewin later on came out and said, I wrote the book. I wasn't just the editor. I wrote the whole thing. It was a satire. It was supposed to be a satire on the, the extremes to which the military industrial complex would go to keep itself afloat. And uh, But the great footnote to that is I saw an interview with none other than L. Fletcher Prouty, the author of the Secret Team, uh, who was the basis for the character that Donald Sutherland played, Mr. X, in Oliver Stone's JFK, the guy sitting there on the mm-hmm. bench explaining to, to Kevin Costner, you know, the whole conspiracy. Uh, uh, L. Fletcher Prouty said that when he read Report on Iron Mountain, he, he said, when I was working in the JFK administration in the early 60s, that's exactly what all these young guys were saying. They were saying all these things. Yeah. So he said, I assumed it was a real document. And he actually told Leonard Lewin that. And I thought that's that's beautiful because it's like just because it's a satire doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. yeah it could yeah, be you yeah. write a satire <laughs> and you've actually like hit on something that's real, you know? Yeah. Oh um, but 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 uh my friend said he was talking about the satirical aspects of QAnon. And he said the whole aspect of, you know, the adrenochrome and casting aspersions on elitist liberal Hollywood types. Uh, and, and he said, you know, there's a certain metaphorical truth in the sense that these Hollywood people have weird tastes. And so that's where that aspect of it came from. And I, and I thought, you know, in terms of it being a satire, I don't know if that's the successful satire, because a successful satire will make the target seem smaller. Mm. than they are so for example in the 40s you had that um amazing upset with uh harry s truman running against thomas dewey mm. there's the famous photo of harry truman holding up the newspaper and it says you know uh dewey wins and yeah. when actually harry truman won and and uh there was a a famous newspaper columnist who wrote this satirical piece about thomas dewey and said that he looked like the little guy on top of the wedding cake <laughs> and, and there are historians who who actually say that this comment actually had a lot to do with with thomas dewey lo- losing the election because he became <laughs> such a laughing stock and he kind of looked like that guy he actually did look like the little plastic guy on top of the wedding cake and, and of course it was a comment meant to talk about the fact that he was just this empty suit yeah you you know and and uh so so that that is a successful satire because it actually reduces literally reduces the target down to a small person you know uh but whereas QAnon, when you turn uh hollywood actors into these these all-powerful wizards Mm. who are drinking adrenochrome and and actually um, manifesting reality through the, their magical operations in Hollywood. That's that's 
not making them smaller. That's making them seem larger than life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's actually granting them more power than they actually have. Sure. Uh, so I think in terms, if, if, if there was a, a satirical aspect of QAnon, which I think you could argue that there, there absolutely is, uh, I think maybe an unsuccessful one, at least in that in that degree. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, Robert Anton Wilson is such an interesting character to bring up in that case too. Uh, his role in the the history of conspiracy theory is is a fascinating one because he kind of gives the the tools to avoid getting sucked into this type of thing specifically uh reality tunnels and that maintenance of agnosticism when dealing with conspiracy theory but at the same time his own uh his own pranksterism um kind of blossomed into like bolstering concepts of the illuminati and where we are with QAnon and stuff now right well i robert anton wilson said that when when he and his friends started doing the Discordian <clears throat> Operation Mindfuck project, uh, he said, "Was let's offer instead of just having the right wing version of these conspiracy theories around, let's offer our version, and then you can pick and choose, <laughs> you know, what what, what yeah. you want to believe in." And he said, "If yeah. if if, uh, if liberal intellectuals in the sixties and seventies wanted to choose to live in a paranoid reality tunnel that was that was their choice you know but he said um he said he hoped that once you'd explored so many of this these alternate realities that eventually it would kind of break you out of any one of them uh and and you would realize that you had a uh, an embarrassment of riches mm. to choose from <laughs> in terms of what reality you wanted to live in and why would you choose to live in a pessimistic negative one? Um, uh, there, there's a great quote where Robert Anton Wilson said, and I have this like hanging up in my office. The quote is, when you define the power elite as somebody else, I regard that as a loser script. I define the power elite as myself and my friends, and that's a winner script. The way to accomplish things is with a winner script. I define myself as a winner. I define my program as winnable. I count on the stupidity of whoever seems to be in power to undo them eventually because, as I've said, every conspiracy has a natural lifespan. Mm. Every conspiracy collapses by double crosses from within or by superior cleverness by rival conspiracies. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I'm all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, while there's still a lot of it around, we should pay tribute to it. Mm. that's pretty good and he 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 also said that he didn't believe in one monolithic conspiracy because if there was one monolithic conspiracy the world would make sense and (laughs) since it doesn't make sense that means that there's a lot of little conspiracies all combating each other uh at the same time which i um i heard timothy leary say and you can since you you teach english as well uh, in university, you yeah. to understand this. T- T- Timothy Leary said that, you know, he worked at Harvard. You know, I mean, he, he was a tenured professor at Harvard in the 50s and then had the most epic of midlife crises 
and turn into the Pied Piper of, of LSD, right? And gets thrown into Folsom and breaks out with the help of the Black Panthers and mm. goes to Algeria. And then he's kidnapped by the Black Panthers and escapes from them and eventually ends up back in prison. Yeah. Um, and and he said that when he was in the, the rec yard with all, all these other... Oh, that's another great thing. When, he's, when he first enters into the prison, when they give all the inmates uh, an initial psychology test that they have to fill out. And it's the one that he created when he was at Harvard. He's given his own test <laughs> yeah. upon entering the prison. Uh, when he was out in the rec yard and he's seeing all the various gangs that inevitably form in any prison, uh, he said he suddenly realized that the power structure of the prison was the same exact power structure at Harvard. It operated <laughs> in exactly the same way. It was just that it was a different variety of personality. Uh, you had these rival gangs. They were all out, you know, Machiavellian uh, attempts to stab each other in the back, all these power moves. Um, and it was it was the same exact phenomenon. He'd gone from Harvard to get away from all this and ends up in prison and is dealing with the same thing. Crazy. That enters into that, you know, that reality of, of the world doesn't make sense because of these conflicting conspiracies. And that's, you know, if you've ever spent any time in academia, you know, you, you'll see that all people vying for power in the most mundane ways. Hmm. He's shocked at what people will do yeah. to get control of a small, petty amount of power. <laughs> yeah, that's fast. <laughs> and then you think, but you think, okay, blow that up to like you're in the White House. Yeah. What would you be if if someone's willing to do this to become like the co-chair? Yeah. Uh, what mm. <laughs> what right. what would they be willing to maintain power if they were president of the United States? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There doesn't seem to be a, a ceiling to to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, I think. We got a pretty lengthy episode here. Uh, maybe you could tell us where to where to pick up the new book and uh, Camellio as well and the, the other books. Well, uh, Camellio, Operation Mindfuck, uh, they're both available on Amazon. If you don't want to deal with a giant evil corporation, then uh, they're both available from Or Books as mm -hmm. well, orbooks.com. Um, and all of my other until last dog dies the novel I mentioned that's on Amazon as well they're all on Amazon cryptoscopology as well uh, yeah yeah and I have a, 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 a new novel coming out later this year mm. called uh, Dead Monkey Rum mm. um, which is all about the theories of Stanislaw Sokolsky. Um if yeah. you go to Netflix there's a documentary called Struggle the life and lost art of Sokolsky. Uh, yeah. he, mm. he was a very famous artist in Poland who came to America and developed the theory that most of the fascists that um, uh, we deal with on a daily basis are uh, the progeny of um, yetis uh, raping human women and creating hybrids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I saw that. I saw that documentary. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. If you look closely, I'm, I'm, I'm thanked at the end. Uh, I'm giving wow. a little thank you credit at the end of that documentary. If you look closely, you'll see it. Uh, you'll blink and you'll miss it. But uh, <laughs> yes, I have this novel coming out, Dead Monkey Rum. It's all about Stanislaw Sukalski. Mm, and awesome. uh, I've, got, I've gotten blurbs from um, uh, Robert Williams, the, the painter, Robert Williams, mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, Jim Woodring, 
and um, uh, Lauren Coleman, uh, the cryptoscriptologist, Lauren Coleman, yeah. uh, and Eirik uh, Dubrowski, who is the, the director of, of Struggle, uh, sure. gave me a blurb as well. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wild, gonzo, wacky novel, but also a, a cryptozoological fantasy, I guess you could say. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely grab that when it comes out. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to have you back on in the future to talk about uh, some of the stuff you're working on. The Hollywood book sounds fascinating, too, and, and thank you so much for coming on. I mean, this has been incredible yeah. um, getting into, at length, uh, both of these amazing books. Yeah, right, for thank, sure. Thank you. Yeah, I, w- I would love to come back on. Great. Awesome. Uh, uh, thanks for I listening. Guess that'll do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back soon. Uh, take care. <laughs> yeah.